Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey everybody, I am having a very exciting week. I had my album come out, My Big Break. And which is available on iTunes and Amazon and Spotify and all that good stuff. iTunes helps me out the most, FYI, as far as um, ratings goes and everything else and writing reviews and purchasing and all that. But, um, you know, I, most importantly, I want you guys to listen to it. So whatever medium you choose, please don't steal it. But, you know, if you have Spotify, you can listen to it for free. Um, but anyhow, uh, it's, it's been incredibly exciting. Um, as I'm recording this right now, my album is actually at number one on the iTunes comedy charts, which I did not anticipate. I would have never, um, have been, um, arrogant enough to even, um, imagine that was a possibility. So it was, it was quite a surprise and, really cool and it's it's been hanging around the top five um it's been very solid people are uh, really liking it and i've been getting lots of uh great feedback on twitter and facebook i think it's the best work that i've ever done and uh so it's it's nice to see that other people are agreeing with that um so you know go and check that out super exciting and and because i'm having such a good week today's episode i was actually going to this was originally going to be a two-part episode i've actually been holding on to this for a while i've been kind of figuring out the when when the best time to do this uh would be when i originally recorded this i i wasn't really sure it was the best fit for this podcast i wasn't sure how closely i wanted to adhere to this exact theme of having you know an academic like a professor on every single episode because this one is is much different um 
And and if I'm being honest, and we'll talk about it, I'm just nervous because on it I talk about um, my own um, use with hallucinogens, and with that comes some judgment uh, from people. But for those of you that a lot of listeners of this podcast discovered it, um, listening to me talk on on Pete Holmes, you made it weird, which is um, an amazing podcast, by the way. You should definitely check that out, um, and especially my episode. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, um, and, and, and people have been asking when I was going to have an episode, um, with DMT, I've, I've tried to find some actual like academics and researchers and I, and I will probably in the future. And I'm also, it's just like a different part of my life that I'm kind of mostly keeping separate from this, but this was just such a fantastic conversation with such a bright, weird, interesting dude, and um, absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, and and I think you, I think for some listeners, this might be one of uh, your favorite episodes, if if not your favorite. And then other people are going to think that I'm. Uh, a lunatic and that we're both lunatics and and both are fine um but uh, you know I've, I've decided from doing this over the last few months that i do want to um branch out a little bit and try to make these episodes as um, diverse as possible so we're not just talking about you know evolutionary psychology or you know what whatever it might be on every single episode, which is funny because we talk about it a lot in this episode. But the the point being, um, I, I I think it's very very important to get as many different points of view as possible, and um, and this is a, a very unique and interesting point of view, and just a really smooth, great, comfortable conversation, um, and between two semi-like-minded and then very different-minded people, uh, which is awesome. So, uh, sorry for, you know, the long intros and everything. It's just, I, I was a little nervous about this one, but I, I think you guys are, are going to find it really, really interesting. Um, and, and please remember, remember to check out my album as well. And, um, and, and yeah, and, and thank you guys so much for writing reviews and everything else. That's why I decided the number one feedback that I get about this podcast is that people wish that the episodes were longer. And so I thought today, uh, why not do that? Um, so enjoy and I'll, I'll talk to you on the back end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. So a while back, I had, about a year ago, I met some people in Dallas that introduced me to DMT. Um dimethyltryptamine i don't know um enough about it really to tell you exactly what's going on with it uh, which is which is why i was interested in learning um a bit more it's basically it's just like kind of the world's most powerful hallucinogen or one of them um anyway and uh and it was just um an incredible experience and me um being into science and wanting 
you know, answers. And I have, I do have very much an appreciation for the scientific method and everything else, which, um, which, uh, we'll, we'll probably be talking about, um, or we've already started talking about. So these, these friends of mine who I, I've, uh, now it, this is always a very bonding experience. Anytime you do psychedelics with, with someone, there's always this heavy connection. I reached out to them. I'm like, I, I'm coming to, um, I'm coming through, um, you know, Dallas and Austin and, uh, Texas area. Is there anyone around? I have this podcast. I'm, I'm talking to scientists, mostly academics and such. Is there anyone that you know of? Because, uh, the person that introduced me was, um, had gone to school for neuroscience. I was like, do you know, like a neuroscientist or something like that, that would be able to shed light on any of this, um, stuff and she directed me uh to michael garfield who um uh, why don't you uh, because i from your site you do <laughs> roughly one million things and and i i know that you had a science background and um i have a sense of what it is that you do but i feel uncomfortable uh assuming um, to introduce you correctly. So could you just give a, a bit of one, your background and two, uh, in any order, uh, what your, um, what you do now, um, and, and what you're into. Cause you're an amazing artist and musician and philosopher and all of this very, very cool stuff. Go to, it's just, um, michaelgarfield.com, correct? Dot, dot net. Dot net. Oh. Dot com takes you to a completely different Michael Garfield who is also a Texan. It's very strange. Oh, really? It's like a bizarro Superman. And now kind of us thing. saying this, it's not going to work. It's going to uh, be like, no, don't go. To michaelgarfield.com. You have to go to michaelgarfield.net and people are going to hear this and as they're typing in michaelgarfield.com. And There's no way to make the mistake between the two of us. <laughs> um, I, uh, and I'll have links on the site yeah. and everything. Well, I mean, uh, the short of it is that I grew up wanting to be a paleontologist. You mm -hmm. know, I actually went and did dinosaur work in Wyoming every summer as a teenager with uh, Bob Bakker, who was like the motorcycle were you, dude. Sorry, were were yeah. you like into dinosaurs just like from a very early age? Is that is that was that the entry point? I think the the trajectory goes from like earth moving equipment, you know, because it's huge and loud and scary. Oh yeah, and that uh, you know, um, if I didn't do this, if I wasn't a comedian, I would like to be a crane operator. Oh yeah, I still want to be a crane operator. Sort oh. of. Some days I'm like, oh, forget all this shit. I'm going to go and operate a crane. Although I think it's kind of a lonely job, like like working in a, a lighthouse or something. You know, it, you're just in that box all day. Yeah, but at least you're doing things. You're yeah, pulling levers. You're I was obsessed faster. with that little sandbox crane. As oh, a kid. me too, yeah. man. But so I mean, you know, that's that we can get back. To that I we like, don't have to talk sandbox cranes for an hour it's well it's fine. it's Go about on. it's about the uh you know the the program of technology you know the evolution of technology and the you know the recognition of 
the desire for control, you know, when you realize that you are separate from the world. It's like the emergence of the uh, ego creates this insecurity. This you know, is the, why the, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, because if I'm talking to anyone else about playing in a sandbox as a kid, it's not going to get this deep within <laughs> 10 seconds. All of a sudden, you're talking about the emergence of the ego. Wonderful. Keep well, going. Well, I mean, so... So, you know, my ego went from being just utterly fascinated by loud, big, scary things. And that kind of, you know, at some point became dinosaurs because I was growing up around the time that they started making the uh, Dynamation robotic dinosaurs and putting those those animatronic dinosaurs in museums, you know. So it was the next best thing to actually like seeing them alive in person. You know, it had that very visceral effect. I was horrified of these things and I got really into it. And, uh, through that process, I kind of became, uh, the student of this guy, Robert Bacher, who was this charismatic kind of like rock star paleontologist in the eighties. And he's still, he's still active today and he's doing great work. He was the guy who, helped reshape the public image and make dinosaurs these like fast moving, warm blooded, family oriented, feathered creatures. You know, his, he had a book, uh, dinosaur heresies from 1986. And I, I grew up attempting and failing to read this, you know, complicated science book and then going out and doing dinosaur work with him. And I managed to carry that love all the way through college. Um, at which point, his particular field research team fell apart due to political reasons. I was going to the university of Kansas, which has an excellent evolutionary biology program. And in my final year of school, I got into, um, not only, uh, like a larger series of questions about evolution than just paleoecology or like the reconstruction of ancient ecological systems, which was what the work he was doing in Wyoming. But, evolution as a process and trying to understand it in general terms, like coming up with a general theory of evolution, you know, how it, you know, does it have a direction? That's the first question. You know, that's like one of the most hotly contested questions in biology, you know? Yeah. I mean, I already have an answer in my mind. And so, yeah. so whatever you say, there's probably going to be a bit of confirmation bias on, on my end. And right. Um, right. Because I, I, and I mean, part of, uh, <laughs> from, I think we have probably two different, two, two differing points of views. One is that I kind of think this is all, um, quite random and we are kind of these misfits of chance that are um kind of just plopped here uh sorting out this weird existence and you kind of have um i mean i'll let you explain it but i get the sense that you have a bit of an opposite view of that well i mean i wouldn't say it's opposite here's the thing is that anytime anytime you're presented with an either or dyad like this, the, the odds are, and people have been arguing about it for centuries. The odds are pretty good that it's not exclusively one answer or the other, you know, I mean, and even Charles Darwin, you know, said that evolution was about random mutations paired with directional selection. That is the context of the environment that is, you know, focusing and emphasizing a selective pressure. You know, the selection itself has never been random. You know, and and in uh, the origin of the species, you know, he talked about that a little bit, but then he went on to write the Descent of Man, mm-hmm. in which he talked a lot more about what he believed to be a, a telos or an evolutionary 
uh, trajectory that he believed that, uh, for example, like uh, a religious impulse and morality and a, uh, you know, a, a community mind was something that was sort of in the grain of evolution. And, you know, he, he connected it or associated it with sexual selection and the evolution of social organisms, right? you know, and, and just this whole thing about choice. I mean, I, I definitely, I'm all about all of that, I guess probably where, uh, and again, I'm speculating and putting, um, words in your mouth and, um, this is all very unfair already. <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I, I accept I, you. I, I think that, um, everything that you just said is dead on and that's, very much it represents my beliefs um quite well i i guess i would just say that probably where we differ is um that i don't think that there is like an ultimate direction that uh humans are going to i I don't think that there is um a goal like you know i i mean i i get that um there's going to always be a changing environment and there's always going to be like kind of these optimizations and uh-huh. that sort of thing. And, and populations might uh, differ and change to optimize in differing environments. Um, but I don't think that there is like an ultimate one like objective thing that we're moving towards okay well let's see if we can tightrope all the way across your first question and let's let's hold that that question as a goal at the end of you know like a meta goal at the end of this uh because so you know what i i started getting interested in these bigger questions Mm -hmm. right as i was getting out of my my uh undergraduate education and uh you know, the problem was as I was starting to try and find a graduate program where I could start asking these questions, the, the answers require a study that is so vastly multidisciplinary that at the time, this was 2005, no one was available to teach that. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the kind of people that were doing the research I was interested in were all, you know, just extremely sophisticated think tanks like the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity, where there wasn't a an, a graduate program available with these people. You know, I mean, there wasn't. Uh, when when I asked my advisors about it at, at KU, they said, "Well, we could put together, you know, people from the philosophy department, the biology department, you know, various programs in the humanities and the sciences, and mix it all together." The problem is then that not only are you creating your own degree program and your own thesis, which the thesis was a survey of the literature on self on emergent systems and self organization mm-hmm. and the emergence of complexity, you know, and trying to find whatever I could in the literature from all of these different disciplines to try and uh, trace them to their convergent point at some horizon of understanding, you know, to say, look, all of these individual, you know, all these separate domains of research are converging on the same general idea of how it is. I mean, chaos theory is a part of it. Yeah. So, uh, but then they were like, but you're going to have to teach every one of your advisors how to speak the language of everybody else. And I was like, this is bullshit. You know, I'm, Mm. I mean, at that point I, I basically threw up my hands 
and said, I don't want to spend the next 10 years working on my graduate advisor's pet project while I'm in the closet about what I actually want to study and waiting until I'm tenured before I can like come out and say, surprise, I have this idea that I want to work on that's so ambitious that nobody would let me do it as a graduate student. And it's, you know, everyone that I talked to said it was, you know, a very worthy area of research, but that the way that the academic system was set up at the time, and I think things are changing now, mm-hmm. but, you know, they were saying, look, for the last several hundred years, the university system is set up as a, a series of academic, like feudal guilds, you know, and it's only getting more and more splintered. Right. You know, I think the internet has I mean, changed I, that. I think that, but, um, I, I will say, so, so this is uh, part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast and going around and hopefully talking to as diverse, uh, of us, um, people, different subjects as I can is just because when I first, and I, I mean, I've been into science for a very long time, but like obsessively wasn't until like a few years ago, really, where it was just, I found myself maybe five years ago or so, maybe a little longer than that, just obsessively all of the time, even when I I don't drink anymore, but I used to get hammered, um, after a show, go back in my hotel room and like blacked out drunk. I would like be cracking (laughs) open physics books and stuff, which is not a good way to learn physics. Um, but, uh, uh, but this is, I mean, um, evolutionary psychology and biology was kind of the thing that really just grabbed me and was like, Oh, this explains so much of it answers so many questions. And, and then, but then once I really learned a lot about it and got a really good sense of it, that is, I mean, kind of what you're talking about is, is, um, how I felt in many ways, which was everyone's book has an angle by necessity Everyone has to have kind of like a hook that they're selling. And this hook, you have to have your, uh, uh, you, you know, your highlighting evidence that, uh, that is uh, helping along your hook. And you're kind of dismissing some other things here and there, especially um, um, pop science books, which I think are very important. Pop science books get shit on way too much, in my opinion. I think we need to reach um, regular people. Um, but I think it should come with a big warning label on the cover of them. That's just like, you know, take, take some of this stuff, get what you can out of it and get excited, but take some of it with a grain of salt as well. And I'm, and I'm like, well, I need to learn more about neuroscience because there's all these conflicting ideas here. And I, I, I just don't know as much. So then I started branching out and, and, um, learning about more, um, more subjects. So, so you found, cause I didn't go to college. So you found that, um, academia was not the place to go and, and find all these interdisciplinary. Well, it was bothersome because some of the things that I was learning in one class were not being applied in other classes in the same department. Like I took a class on taxonomy, which is, you know, how we classify living systems, you know, or, you know, taxonomy is a more general thing, but you know, we were looking at, uh, the way that we organize our research into the, the various bodies, the groups of life, you know, and the, the basic unit for 300 years has been, or I guess yeah, more like 200 years has been 
since Linnaeus, the species, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's sort of like the atom of life. Can it fuck or not? Basically. Yeah. Well, and see, that's the thing. That's one definition of species, right. one definition. And then there's, there are in practice about half a dozen different definitions about, you know, do they look similar enough or are they genetically similar enough? The whole genotyping thing is really big in research right now. So that's, you know, that's, there are a lot of people, including some of the people I worked with at KU who are finding that these two frogs that look identical are actually different species because they're different enough in, in their DNA. And you'd never know that, um, you'd never get them to mate one way or the other because they live on different islands. So you right. can never, you can never answer that question, you know? So there's like all of these different ways, these different, um, you know, some of them will mate in, in the wild, but not in a lab. Some of them will mate in the lab, but not in the wild, you know? I mean, you think in terms of like, you know, jailhouse love, that makes a kind of a sense. Right. And, and so, you know, none of these definitions of a species work in every imaginable situation. So the, what the, what I got from that one class was this is contextual. It's conditional and you have to go in and you have to state the lens. You have to state the species concept that you're working with in your paper, you know, as part of your research methodology. Like you have to say, you know, I'm using the phylogenetic species concept or, you know, I'm using the evolutionary species concept. And so Really, you know, what I got from that was that it's, you know, it's really, uh, you know, I started to dissolve into this more kind of postmodern relativistic way of seeing things where I was like the lines that we're drawing in nature are there in some very real sense, but they're, they're, they're practical considerations. They're not absolute, you know, these things change, Mm -hmm. you know, so, and that's what that's how species divide and then come together and, you know, hybridize and split apart and all this. So these, these lines, um, you know, our categories are categories that have evolved out of our relationship with the environment and our experience. And they are, um, you know, they're provisional, you know, these are, they're working definitions, Mm -hmm. you know, and any good scientist is going to, you know, is going to, tell you that, you know, that this is, this is just a working idea, you know? Um, and as soon as we reach this, this threshold of anomalous evidence that no longer, you know, for which this idea is no longer satisfying, then we have to go through this like awkward limbo phase of trying to come up with a new larger idea that will encapsulate everything we thought we knew and all of the weird shit that doesn't make, you know, that makes that first idea make no sense. Right. So, I started getting into uh, two things out of that. One was um, developmental psychology because, you know, the way that, but, but actually let's, let's, I want to tackle that second. The, 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 the first thing I got into was the philosophy of science. You know, how is it that science is practiced now? How, how has it been practiced, you know, as one of uh, a myriad of different ways of relating to the world and trying to make sense of the world? You know, mm-hmm. and then from, from that, you know, and reading stuff like, you know, the Thomas Kuhn structure of scientific revolutions, which is you know just such, such a definitive superb treatment of how it is that we decide that something is a fact, you know, and, uh, as, uh, uh, William Irwin Thompson, who's a f- 
cultural historian. He used to teach at uh, MIT. He's fond of saying that a fact requires a theory like a flame requires an atmosphere, you know, so that everything we think is true is true within a certain context. And, you know, and for the last hundred years, that's meant different things in, you know, that, that we've seen that show up, that understanding show up in every imaginable field. It, it's shown up in. Well, even even just uh, evolutionary biology and psychology, for example, the early days was a lot of like, obviously men are in charge. We all know men are in charge. So when we look at uh, when when we look at um, uh, animal life, obviously what's happening here is the females playing this passive role. Um, I think that's a pretty good example of uh, be, because there was just nothing but men doing the science and then females get involved and it's like, wait a second, females are actually playing a very big part in, and selecting for, uh, who, who is, um, which males genes are getting passed on. And, um, yeah, the, um, you know, that the whole issue of the people with, I mean, that's a power dynamics thing, right? It's like the, the people who have the power, um, organize the values of that society, around their own concept of power, you know? So because this group of guys is more physically, you know, is, is stronger, they say, well, oh, look at you, you're weaker and therefore you're lesser, you know? It's right. like, of course, I mean, I did that when I was a kid, you know? And like when I noticed I was like smarter than another group of kids, I was like, you're, you, you are lesser beings, yeah. you know? But then I learned about that, you know, when I got into developmental psychology, I got into, you know, Howard Gardner's research on multiple developmental lines, you know, multiple intelligences. So Gardner's stuff was all about, uh, you know, his work was in education and multiple intelligences. And he was saying, you know, uh, he was one of the people that was like a proponent of the emotional quotient, like the EQ test, you know, or kinesthetic intelligence, mathematical, musical intelligence, you know, all of these different things that we were not measuring with our standardized tests. And yet this, you know, this one child is, vastly more capable as a dancer, you know, but not so good at math. So why is that kid being regarded as developmentally disabled? Right. You know, it's like we have to recognize that there's a, uh, you know, a diversity of different intelligences because our society has adapted to a complex social organization with a diversity <laughs> I, of, of personality types. I'm really hoping that the world doesn't flip because if, if, if all of a sudden it's just nothing but dancing intelligence, which the world could very well <laughs> go that way at any moment, I feel like we're right there. Could could very well, we, we could all be dancing with the stars or or uh, being weeded out very soon. Um, yeah, that's and, how I and, feel at my job these days, <laughs> like hanging out at festivals. Like, sorry, sorry, guys. <laughs> but if that happens, I am going to be like, they're going to be like, oh, look at this, look at this poor uh, mentally handicapped person who can't keep a rhythm <laughs> or... <laughs> He's throwing his hands around in a fit. Uh, this would this would make a lot more sense if someone actually sees me dance. I should just record thirty seconds of me attempting to dance, so you can have a laugh at my expense. I mean, well, you um, came in on crutches. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is it's actually improved um, my my dancing abilities um, on crutches. I'm at least as good because now it's like there's a reason why I'm so bad. Whereas before it was just like, why is this perfectly fit, capable human 
moving around like that. <laughs> I used to dance with a, my girlfriend would make me dance sometimes, or she tried to. The first time she made me dance, my last girlfriend, basically every girlfriend after her, they finally convinced me to dance with them. They're like, oh, we don't have to dance anymore. Oh. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so bad. But I, uh, I, I'm good at a lot of other things in life. Dancing is not one of them. And, um, I, my, my girlfriend literally, quite literally said, I think it's a joke on my special on Netflix said, um, uh, I, I think I get what you're doing with your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> but what song are your legs listening to? And and um yeah, I, I'm just really awful. She would like she would face away from me and then dance and like so she wouldn't have to look at me uh dancing. Oh. That's how. And so that's like what a freak I would be in this in this new world where just everyone is dancing and that's how we evaluate how your your worth as a human. But that really does illustrate kind of what you're saying with with let's not judge someone on one particular thing but because hey if you're if math is the only skill that's good to have in life and now you're you're pairing up these these two genius mathematicians and then you're going hey why are why are they having these autistic kids with no social skills it's like well you just paired up two extremely borderline autistic socially awkward people and that's what you got um which you know I'm, uh, that's wild speculation on autism but <laughs> but <laughs> and this is, this is a podcast we're not going to get ourselves in trouble no one's listening um but um but yeah i mean just to i was trying to lend to your point the yeah uh, the idea that um we definitely shouldn't hold one very specific thing sacred well i mean and you know the thing is that people are only developing along certain lines because the, the society is selecting for that you know whereas um you know we know now that people actually do better at math problems if they're allowed to move their hands that there's a there's a kinesthetic dimension to cognition mm. to you know the the freedom to move is the freedom to think because we think with our entire body. We don't just think with our head. And that there's been a huge mistake in forcing all of these children to sit perfectly still at desks all day that we're actually retarding well, the their development. For the first time in all of life's history, for the first time in 3.5 billion years, we're like, sit, you sit down and learn now. Yeah. Uh, this, this, is brand, this is a brand new idea. And then it's, I, I mean... You're sitting there, any hunter-gatherer tribe, you hit puberty, and you start, the boys and girls start chasing each other around a bit, you know, and, and then and then we're saying, stop this, it's time for a history lesson. Hey, why aren't you guys paying attention to um, this um, bizarre, contrived uh, Christopher Columbus narrative? Uh, uh, what, uh, instead, you're, instead you're thinking of, um, instead you're, why are you, why are you thinking about girls 
or, or boys or whatever it might be. Well, we're trying to give you this very important information about how our country was founded. It's like we weren't built to do any of that. The reason why I'm thinking about uh, sex right now is because that's where my head should be at. That's where it's been for millions of years before this. So, it, um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. That's... And you're also making me feel worse about not dancing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just like one of the you know innumerable ways that our society um, has you know crushed the human animal you know in 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 this sort of life denying body denying way that again you know to tie it back to the the sandbox mm. you know is part of this this program of you know the manipulation and control of nature. You know, that in all in all honesty is like a very understandable, you know, looking back at it, you know, over the thousands of years of history, it makes a lot of sense why the the dominant mythology of our species for so long was about trying to manage and bring order to this chaotic and unruly world that we lived in where, you know, we, you know, more often than not, you know, we would have a child and they would they would die, you know, before they they grew to adulthood or, you know, this. I mean, just, we were prey. We needed right. to evolve these defenses. And, and this is where aggression and everything else is coming from. And who knows what happened with the X amount of other spe- human species, Neanderthals and et cetera. And, and what we had to go through with the possibly the cognitive revolution and that sort of thing, of course, is all wild speculation as well. But but. We had to, it's it's like, uh, at one point, chasing mammoths off a cliff made absolute sense. If there's plenty (laughs) of mammoths around and this is like, well, this seems, you know, we were just evolved to, well, this is, here's a free source of meat. There's plenty of these things around. What's it matter from just like a bear survival? And now we've chased everything off the damn cliff. And now we're looking and going... Uh oh, <laughs> we don't have an uh, ecosystem anymore. Well, it's just like, you know, at one point it made sense to eat all of the sugar that you could find. Right, you right, know, right. Because there was only so much fruit in the environment and you, you were never going to get diabetes from eating too much of we it. We didn't evolve with refrigerators on hand full right, of food. Right, right. Or, you know, uh, I forget. Stress is another one like that. I, I mean, we evolved to quick get away from uh, a lion and you know you shut down your digestion and uh, possibly messing with your immune system a little bit and tweaking some things because those aren't as important as powering your legs to get away and and that sort of thing now all of a sudden we have this same um, uh, kind of outdated uh, stress response system that's kind of across the board throughout all of these um, mammals where now we're behind a car or behind the wheel of a car, white knuckling it on the way to work because you're worried about getting a pink slip from a job that you already hate. And, and um, I mean, just so much of, of our modern environment is, uh, is like that. And, and, and you're, you're worried. You're using a mechanism that is meant to be running, like get you away from a lion or something or catch and hunt a lion whatever it might be you're using this same mechanism and you're thinking about your retirement fund 
for 30 years ago with this and your heart's racing the same exact way that it, that it would be. And now this is chronic and you're doing this all day long. And now it's becoming just like obesity. Um, it's, it's becoming this thing that's is burning everyone out and heart disease and everything else. Yeah. You've got, uh, you know, the, the chair with a back is actually only a few thousand years old, and the sedentary lifestyle is very new. You know, ah, so I never thought yeah, about the chair with the back. Oh, before. there is. Yeah, it's it's actually. You know, uh, is that why? All, did I? Is this why you got this ball thing? Here? It is part yeah. of. Yeah, you know, it's part of that. You know, and then and then also there's there's a lot of really good evolutionary biology on um, the again the scientist's name escapes me, um, but he had a fabulous interview on Edge.org about barefoot running, and you can probably search the terms from that. Um, and you know what just might might i might i say <laughs> sometimes uh as a man with two broken heels <laughs> from wearing barefoot running shoes while hiking which i wasn't i didn't know i was gonna be hiking that day or i would have worn something with more support uh sometimes as manufactured support does actually serve a function well, and help us out. I mean out. now now we've we've co-evolved with right, the with absolutely. the with the shoe, you know. So so, I mean, so now it's like I put on this barefoot running shoe. I actually said that before I jumped off. I'm like I'm thinking I might just take my shoes off so I land the way that my body would naturally land. These barefoot running shoes are tricking my instincts into thinking i have a shoe on and i'm going to land accordingly well it's that and it's also the fact that you know you and i are are, you know our feet are basically jellyfish out of water compared to the the development of the musculature in a foot you know ten thousand twenty thousand years ago Mm. i mean it's just not even comparable you know the amount of uh yeah i read this really interesting thing from thomas jefferson uh, a couple days ago where he was talking about you know the native american and how, you know, they're saying, well, this guy can run further every day than our horses can before our horses get tired, you know? And it's just, it's just, it's, it's not about so much the genetic capacity of the body, but, you know, in that particular case, it's, it seems to be more about the way that we have conditioned ourselves uh, culturally. And then, you know, possibly also some sort of um, epigenetic learning or like a like a racial inheritance yeah we, i mean there's also neuroplasticity and involved with learning motor skills and everything too so there's, there's i like a, to think it's not too late to retrain you know but yeah. you got to take it slow i mean you're not just gonna like you know crawl up out of the out of the wastes of yourself and and be this like ubermensch you know but so so okay so uh you know there's a great deal of forgiveness that we have to that I think it's in our benefit to uh, offer to the past, you know, now that we have this perspective, because um, first of all, it doesn't really do us much good to just rage against the state of things without some sort of perspective, without understanding how things got to be this way. In the first place, we can't really ever arrive at a better solution. You know, a lot of people talk about wanting to just wipe it clean and start over and it's like really you want to start with you know internecine warfare and like you know and that's just impossible anyway because we evolved in a changing condition and so all you're doing is picking an arbitrary moment in time and and trying to um artificially manufacture these same um stimulus and environment and everything else which it was which one impossible not going to happen and two uh, th- that that moment of time was as much a sliver 
uh, as this moment of of time is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but as far as like the you know the the contest over whether you know this this idea that there is a directionality or a trajectory, mm-hmm. you know, um, there is, you know, I'm I am for for reasons I'll get into like of the mind that we're not just so much optimizing our human capacity with this sort of moving target environment, but that we have actually made genuine progress over the last 50,000 years from the perspective of the project of life on earth since its beginning, you know, in terms of that life being understood as a series of nested, like fractally nested symbiotic relationships that starts going to have to unpack okay. all you know these okay are, okay uh, so th- this is for i uh, if i didn't have any idea what you just said um some listeners all right will, well uh, uh, have have trouble as well. all right well um so so just to to you know braid it back into the development of you know, and the fact that none of this really has gotten into like what I'm doing professionally doesn't matter. Yeah. No, I, this I, is a great, I, this, I love this stuff. I love talking about it. So, um, you know, you, the development, uh, you know, evolutionary biology and the philosophy of science, you know, and the history of science, which in its way is related to the history of consciousness or human consciousness and culture mm-hmm. and how we have, you know, our changing relationship to reality over the centuries and millennia, you know, and the, and the, our changing relationship to the methods by which we explore reality and arrive at determinations about what is and is not true, you know, and that is uh, a very similar story to the story of the development of the psychology of any given individual. You know, there's this uh, another hotly contested phrase out of out of uh, evolutionary biology is Ernst Haeckel's statement that uh, phylogeny re- or that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which, by which he means the development of the individual organism is sort of like a sped up and shrunk version of the development of the entire history of that organism's lineage. You know, that there's like that moment in the embryo where you have gills and flippers, you know, mm-hmm. and before that, there's that moment where you look more or less like a worm. You're just like this sort of undifferentiated segmented thing with a spinal cord, you know, and, and, you know, you, you carry it all the way back and it's just that one cell, you know? So he was, what he saw in his, his embryo studies was that, you know, that it, if you trace sort of back from the leaf on, on, that any organisms on the tree of life all the way back down to the trunk, that the closer you get to the trunk, the more those embryos look the same, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so there's something similar going on in the relationship between the development of our, yours and mine and, and anyone listening, our individual psychology growing up, you know, and the way that this, the, culture that the, the, the social psychology of our entire human species has developed over the last, however many thousands of years, because, and this is when I started getting into stuff like, uh, the work of Gene Gebser, who, um, he was looking at basically what he called structures of consciousness. 
And what he saw was that at, at different points in the human story, you know, like our story of mm-hmm. the history of the, the human species, meaning like, you know, the scientific West, that we started out in the sort of relatively undifferentiated primal consciousness that was in some ways uh, a lot like what we see in infants. You know, it was very much about the here and the, and the now, you know, and it didn't really draw associations between things. And at some point, and honestly, I think, I think probably um, by the time we were considered human beings, we'd already moved beyond that and into what he called uh, the magical consciousness and magical consciousness is the, the level, the structure of consciousness where those individual experiences, we start to make uh, correlations and draw associations. And this is where, you know, you see this in like the neural activity of the brain where like they, they fire together. So they wire together, you know, you can see the brain actually start to learn that every time the bell rings that I'm going to get fed, you know? And so magical consciousness um, is something that we see played out in sympathetic magic, like, like uh, voodoo, you know, where, by repeating the circumstances of that original experience, you're in a, you're attempting to control the outcome of an event, you know, where, or, you know, you, or you see, you know, like the voodoo doll, the whole thing about the voodoo doll is that this thing looks like this person. So if I do this thing to this doll, then it will happen to that person. Right. It's a very, it's not empirical, you know, it's not like developed to that scientific level. But it's starting to recognize that there are similarities between things Mm -hmm. and starting. I mean, this is basically the basic code out of which both the arts in terms of like poetry, metaphor, and also the sciences in terms of, you know, our ability to correlate and reproduce a series of events. Both of these come from that, that basic level of thought. And then we added time. And we got into the mythic structure of consciousness. And, and this, is, this is around the moment in history when we moved into cities and we started establishing, uh, you know, moving out of the tribal order, basically. And, you know, where the, the sense of self was diffuse. It was, it was in groups. You know, there was a sort of a, a, a group identity and, and only an understanding of self in, with relationship to the group, the group as self and another, another group as other. You know, and then when we get into cities, suddenly we have larger populations of people and a more complex social infrastructure. And that required a, uh, a greater diversity of individuals and roles in that society. That's when you start getting, you know, really like career soldiers and priests. And that's when you get the emergence of the ego in its kind of modern sense, uh, where it's like recognizing the self as an individual, you know, and mm. the, as a representation of, uh, okay. As the, the, self, yeah, it's the self as someone with a story, I have a history, mm. you know? So like, you know, I was born here and I grew up like this. My parents did this and this is what I wanted to be when I grew up. And that's all ego. That's I've all never mythic really thought ego of it. Uh, Our idea, our sense of self is not unlike a, a self-portrait. Uh, that's where you're trying to replicate this. Th- and 
but but it is it's interesting because our sense of self we, we would we wouldn't um we think we know who we are like we uh, like a painting we know this is just a canvas on a wall and this is this two-dimensional thing and hey i did a good job of drawing this <laughs> representation um but we think and i think often wrongly we think we have a very good idea of this guy shane moss that i've been for 34 years i think i know a bit about him and then you know oftentimes you're wrong and you surprise yourself and and then you, you go to dallas and meet a neuroscientist and, and smoke dmt and you start <laughs> to question that assumption right? <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. you know, so so like you know this is if you want to think about this in terms of geometry you know this sort of like uh, original primordial consciousness is a point mm -hmm. as soon as you can connect points and start drawing lines between them connecting the dots then you have your magical consciousness then you add the dimension of time and suddenly there's a story of how those dots change their relationships over time. And it's around this time in history when we start to see the emergence of hero myths, you know, and narratives, you know, that are, that are about, uh, you know, an individual like the, the If you're about to tell me I can't be Rambo one day, then I'll I'll leave right now. I'll walk. I no, have you're a totally... very strong idea in my mind that I'm going to be Rambo. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> Vietnam was sort of a uh, a prototype, right? There's there's plenty of of uh, you know ongoing, ultimately useless turf wars all over the world that you can get involved in <laughs> and uh, come back traumatized if that is your desire. You know, I don't, it looked pretty cool in the movie. I don't think that's that's you know the highest that one could hope for you personally. I think uh, you seem to be you seem to be a little brighter than that. And clearly, you don't need to buy a college education. So I don't know what the army would really do for you. Um, you know that for you in particular, that ship seems to have sailed. <laughs> oh man! But don't worry because the 21st century is what movie can I watch? To find a goal of who I want to be then, if, if Rambo's now out of Well, that. part of the trauma that you and I are going to experience as, as young people in the 21st century is the, uh, the rending of this mythic landscape and the, the sort of catastrophic, chaotic reemergence of this world beyond control. You know, it's like it's the, the total destruction of that story that we spent several thousand years building up where we we've like now reached this incredible Dude, that, apex that, of that development story's not going away anytime soon oh man. no 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 but we're starting the the best of us are starting to see through it i mean you have to understand that like that i mean i i spend a lot of time on dive bars man that story is is has a firm hold oh and you know and and here's the thing is that that it's it's not wrong. It's not entirely wrong. You know, it's just like, you know, every everything that you thought you knew in the first 3 seasons of Lost and then suddenly the camera zooms out by a power of 10 I, and I didn't see it. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, the, I mean the point is it's like you know, it's like you get to this point where you think you've got it figured out, yeah. you know, and then you know, some door or some wall falls away, you know, and suddenly there's a whole new axis of movement. 
I've never heard someone talk about the finale of Lost. In, oh, it wasn't in the a finale. We're only way. halfway through the show oh, okay. at this point. But I mean, but like, what's happening is that at each of these successive layers, you know, the world that we, and this is where we get back to this issue of like the trajectory of evolution. And off topic, I gotta uh-huh. ask you: seen the leftovers yet? No. Oh man, Creators of Lost, HBO show, amazing. Okay, because I didn't like. Uh, I didn't like Alcatraz. Never saw it. Okay. Not a big TV person. It's awesome. Two uh, percent of the population of Earth just up and vanishes randomly. Three years later, they're showing this town and this one particular family is kind of and how there's cults popping up everywhere trying to explain this. It's a very fascinating, interesting philosophical uh, show. It's very, well, very good. I, I manage my confusion with the chaos of reality by being obsessed with apocalyptic media. Ah, you know? really? How about, how about, um, oh God, why am I not, uh, Vigo Mortensen, The Road? Oh, see, no, I mean, the uh, thing with, I love the road. Oh, but see, see, me. But see, the thing, I thought we were going to really exactly connect that, there. Well, no, see, the thing about that is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think they kind of like set the bar pretty low. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't, uh, I mean, what, what, what exactly is redemptive about that? I'm more into, there's a, I see you like happy endings. No, I no, can not already necessarily, tell. Not necessarily. Like, I think, I think, uh, you know, I follow my buddy, Jonathan Zapp with, uh, that probably the like primo work of apocalyptic fiction was Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end, you know, okay. where like the human species ends up dying out. You know, we give birth to this race of like telepathic super children that are beyond our understanding and they like get together and form some super consciousness and ascend into a different layer of reality and leave everybody else in the lurch and everybody else. I mean, there's only like one guy left to see it and it's just like, you know, we're we're basically obsoleted, Mm. you know, Um, but it's a very... You know, it's not it's not what you would consider to be a happy ending, but it is what I would consider to be a a true ending, in the sense that it points at a you know like a structural constant in the way that we understand the passage of time. You know, it speaks to to you know that relationship that any parent has to their children and that understanding. And that like, you know, you may have led them to the promised land, but you don't yourself get to set foot in it. You know, Mm -hmm. that it's like every generation has to at some point yield to the next, you know, so it's a personal apocalypse, right? but life goes on, right? right, you know? And, um, and so, I mean, at any rate, the, the, we're getting so close to a place where I feel like I can tie all of this together. Um, that is ambitious. Okay. I, yeah. I'm going to be impressed when you do. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I just got in Michael's head by, um, by checking my phone rudely in front of him. I was actually making sure my ringer was off cause it just, Oh no, 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 no. So I was like, I saw like a panic. Oh shit. Is he getting bored with it? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, um, oh, but as far as tying things up go. So we get from, you know, mythic mm-hmm. structure of consciousness, right? And in the, in, the, in the mythic structure, so here's the thing about this. Every one of these structures of consciousness relates to reality in a different way, you know? So this is where it starts to tie back into the history and the philosophy of science, 
you know, because of the mythic structure, what is true is the story, you know, and this is basically uh, the level at which religious fundamentalists continue to operate today. Mm-hmm. You know, there is an external authority, you know, a God King, and then like a priest class that uh, is sort of mediating the relationship between that divine ego and the sort of like uh, subordinate, you know, uh, more kind of, in a sense, more tribal uh, identity. You know, this what... Uh, uh, developmental psychologist John Piaget called a rule and a role based consciousness. I'm wondering, and I don't want to get you off topic or yeah. interrupt because you're kind of um, um, moving um, towards something here, and I don't want to diverge from that too much, I guess. But um, I am curious just because you bring that up and consciousness and everything. I mean, it seems to me that um, uh, people, are, some people seem to think that. There was religion and then spirituality came out of that as some sort of a uh, brainwashing or something like that. I I think that it, that seems impossible to me. I think that spirituality or or let's not even we don't even have to call it that um, goal oriented um, behavior, the, uh, the questioning looking for meaning, looking for purpose, which is just a lot of what it takes any species to navigate through a world, even if you're just talking about making your way through a forest and thinking about looking for uh, for predators or prey or whatever it might be. You have to you have to put together a few things and as as um you know primates and stuff were evolving, I believe it was very much just a part of questioning things was was very much just a part of how we were evolving and i think um i think that tr- uh, ch- i and i only bring this up because we talked about desks and schools and uh-huh. sitting down and learning and now we're talking about priests and there's a connection for me because i seems to me like um like a lot of these uh tri- these post industrial tribes and everything they were having these big spirit Rituals, you know, paleontologists. Uh, <laughs> Why can't I talk right now? Or uh, finding, um, finding like little dance circles and and things like this. Where, um, and then you look at uh, hunter gatherer tribes. These people like dancing themselves into um, transcendental states. And 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 this is this is a kind of a regular ritualistic thing that it seems like has been going on for a long time. And then, you know, uh, we created these, these cities. And so uh, basically you can dance yourself into this transcendental state. And, and I mean, we might differ in what our speculation of uh, what's happening during a transcendental state is, but that, that was kind of um, to me, probably the birth of some of these ideas of like, possibly a God or a higher consciousness or, or whatever it may be. And then I feel like the post-industrial farming, er, agricultural, I should Mm. say, if I've been saying industrial, I didn't mean to, um, post-agricultural world where all of a sudden now, you know, uh, you were able to have these specialized disciplines like you talked about. And, um, you'd maybe have these managers to go and trade with other towns. Well, who's going to be in charge and maybe be like the, 
what were the shaman type of people would maybe do that. And then after a while, it got to be like, well, here's this neat way to get power is to be like, hey, all you guys start dan- stop dancing, sit in pews. I'm the one. I have the special source to the entity. Um, whereas I think before that, I think everyone was involved in that. I think it was a part of, I mean, maybe everyone's brains were connecting differently, but I think uh. this, that was those rituals were a part of, that everyone was taking part in. And then the invention of church actually did the opposite of like, no, now just one guy does this thing that we all were doing. And then I'll tell you all about it and you can give me money and I'll tell you what to do. Well, you know, in the sense that everything is related to everything else. Have you seen there's a fabulous uh, resource online for people that are interested in the evolution of relationships? It's called the Sex 3.0 Wiki. Hmm. And they talk about there being in sort of loose association with these these historical periods and the structures of consciousness, there were they recognize three basic historical versions of sexuality. Like the first version of sexuality is largely tribal. The, the identity is tribal. You know, there's no uh, ownership or, or possession of property, mm-hmm. you know. But then as soon as we start to settling and, you know, we, we got involved in the high technology of animal husbandry, we started to recognize paternity and we started uh, generating, uh, we started managing time differently because we started thinking in terms of annual cycles and seasons and stuff. So we had to, you know, we started uh, accumulating surplus and we had to start thinking about how we were going to manage the surplus. So we had to start thinking about our own lines of paternity, you Mm -hmm. know, and at this point in history, um, you know, women basically, it seems like women basically gave men the job of managing the plows because it was leading to miscarriages. If women were using the plows, you know, so there became a sexual segregation of labor to a greater degree than there was before, right. you know, and all, and then, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, animal husbandry property bounded enclosures, city attitude took over relationships. And that's when we started getting marriage and specifically the idea of the woman as property and children as property and, you know, the, the eldest son and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, um, you know, their arguments really fascinating because they basically say that, um, human behavior on the basic level hasn't really changed at all in any of this time. It's had to, it's just had to adapt, you know, an expression for these fundamental drives in relationship to the social context, you know? So like, whereas before we would have these sort of, um, you know, ecstatic dances that, may often very likely often resulted in sort of uh you know orgiastic communion you know uh that sort of thing got compartmentalized and boxed up and yet everyone living in close association in a community is still interested so we had to start you know creating these these god-given rules you know thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife right kind of thing you know and so people didn't stop sleeping with each other it just became cheating Right. You know, that's sex 2.0 right. and then sex 3.0 is what happens, um, you know, after this sort of mythic consciousness, right? Where you're the city state is the social organization that contains this consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's larger than the tribe. You know, you're dealing with the larger group of people than you can personally know 
And so it requires a different kind of human being to deal with that kind of situation, you know, but then, you know, the, the, the commerce between these cities became more and more robust. And then until pretty soon we had, you know, the emergence of these global shipping routes and, you know, this totally, this exposure to totally foreign cultures and foreign ways of, of relating to the world. And that's around the time that we started seeing the emergence also of the, you know, the printing press. So people, you know, that started to erode the hierarchical structure because people were able to relate to law on a personal level and they were able to relate to uh, the, you know, religious authority on a more personal level. You know, this, that whole Protestant reformation was a huge deal because suddenly people could read the Bible in their own language and they didn't, you know, it wasn't just hordes of illiterate people relying on, you know, priests to read them. Oh, what, what's Latin? Uh, hocus pocus came from that. Um, that's uh, in Latin. It was um, hocus corpus meum. Huh. And um, and illiterates <laughs> didn't know what was going on. <laughs> they just had to go into this church, and there's this fancy man up there, and he says, "Hocus uh, uh, corpus meum" is um, Latin for. Um, I believe it's Latin for this is my body, this is yeah, my blood. And yeah. so you'd say this during this big ceremonial thing, and then people be like, hocus pocus. <laughs> That's the origins of hocus pocus. Yeah, I mean, so suddenly it went from being just total nonsense to being something that we could relate to. Yeah. And that, that uh, horizon of total nonsense receded somewhat around the actual physical horizon. And we started being like, wow, the real foreigners are the Chinese you know, mm-hmm. or for them, it was like the real foreigners are the Italians, you know, and it, there was a, a very different, uh, you know, that that boundary between the social self and the social other keeps stretching as our society gets more and more complex. So as we became more aware of other cultures, we became aware of their methods of relating to reality. And it moved from, you know, the, the encounter with their, their totally divergent sacred tra- traditions and practices you know, so we go from having this, you know, this where science, I mean, that's around the time that science really sort of uh, parted ways with religion, to put it nicely, right? Because, you know, suddenly we realize that there are things that regardless of our our cultural context, that we can agree upon transculturally based on a more basic uh, observation and correlation right. of our of our experiences, you know, so... And we stole a bunch of stuff from the Persians, you know, like <laughs> algebra and astronomy. So, um, so, uh, you know, at that point we've, we've moved from the nation state to what is beginning to be like a, an actually global situation as a species. And that's where you get the emergence of like the rational consciousness, the rational structure, hmm. you know, to refer to Gene Gebser's thing. And that's where you start getting these transcultural forms like the scientific method, you know, uh, the scientific method became uh, exalted as the way to relate to reality, mm-hmm. you know, by that consciousness. But, you know, it's like William Gibson says, the future is already here. It's just distributed unevenly. So, like, everyone goes through some, you know, some simulacrum of these stages individually because we're just kind of dropped into a world that makes no sense and then taught by our culture. Mm-hmm. And we have to rise to the occasion of whatever level our culture is operating at, you know? Right. So, you know, people 
what we really have now is not like a rational age, right? But we have rational cultures in a tapestry with pre and actually post-rational cultures. Because there's another mm-hmm. layer that, that Gebster said, another structure that was just starting to emerge in the 20th century and now is, you know, kind of starting to emerge in the way that the rational enlightenment was happening around the turn of the 18th century. And that is what he called the, you know, the, the integral structure of consciousness where the scientific method is understood as, uh, as a partial truth in the same way that the cultural specifics were understood to be partial by the rational structure. So like, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, like uh, Francis Collins, who is the, you know, the openly devout head of the Human Genome Project, said for him there was no no conflict between his science and his faith because they, you know, they addressed fundamentally different areas, uh, which is not to say that they don't, that there are not topics on which they touch and overlap, you know, but that, um, you know, there, there are ways in which, you know, for example... Um, there is the study of the mind and the study of the brain, you know, mm-hmm. and in terms of, you know, if we're going to talk about it in terms of a scientific method, the scientific method that you apply to the brain is empirical. It's neuroscientific, the scientific method, which is, you know, it's really structurally, it's the same stages. It's the same sort of formulation of a hypothesis, experimental procedure, you know, then you go and you discuss it with a group of people that have followed the same procedure and you arrive at, you know, this, this intersubjective agreement, you know, you know, we agree upon this. We've, you know, we've followed the, uh, you know, the program, you know, we've looked down the the microscope. And so in a way, um, you know, there are, there are methods of psychology as well as spiritual introspection that are as highly developed as as internal sciences as the external sciences but the problem is that they're that uh you know like we were saying at the very beginning of this talk when you're when you come to this fork in the road take it right mm-hmm. you know when we've been arguing for thousands of years and this is not something that i'm saying freshly this is something that gebser articulated this is something that uh, Ken Wilber articulated, that William Irwin Thompson articulated. There's a whole and very like multifarious branch of um, you know cultural studies called integral philosophy that studies this this sort of arc, and it's basically that um, when you arrive at these these stable oppositions, what's the case is that they're probably different angles looking upon the same phenomenon. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, we have mind is more is the experience of this thing for which we have no greater word. And right. the brain is the description of that thing. So, like, you look, you put a monk in a brain scanner and you get, you know, you have them, you know, achieve their non dual awareness. Um, it's not really achieved, right? <laughs> Cause you know, it can't be grabbed or sought or, you know, that's, that's sort of their program for helping people slip into that state, you mm-hmm. know, which is actually, uh, prior to, in some sense, it's, it's a reconnection to this sort of primordial consciousness that Gebser 
posited as the original state of being because it's a state of consciousness before the recognition of these these basic divisions between self and other inside and outside i mean ultimately and this this is a tangent but like ultimately um and uh william james got into this incidentally this was what he called radical empiricism he said if you if you ask the question deeply enough if you really pursue your experience to the hilt to its like absolute conclusion you know as far as you can possibly take it then there is no just as there's no absolute boundary between one species or another except in the way that we conceptualize it or categorize it um the ego is you know or the, the sense of a self distinct from something else is basically just a a learned pattern of associations that there's nothing at in my experience right now that is saying that i can point to and keep my finger on it and say this is where i stop and the world starts yeah i mean a very very silly example of this is like and like not knowing um who we are and how fluid who we are is is here's here's an outrageous silly example for you but it's one that everyone i think will be able to connect with thumbs up a uh a song that you hear on pandora for the first time and you go me shane moss i like this song and then the next time you hear it you go i don't like this uh, song you're the exact same person you thought you knew who you were it'll be pink floyd's my favorite band well, why wouldn't I put my favorite band on? And and you might write this off as like, well, yeah, you're in a particular mood or you're, you know, uh, uh, a particular emotional state at that time. But there's more to it than that. It's just it's that uh, our personality that we think of as like this very stable, predictable thing is exceptionally fluid. Um and and uh ever changing and developing and evolving um i'm gonna throw this out there what do you think about um what do you think about stopping and doing a second um episode um next week i'm into that although i gotta say uh, uh do you want we're getting to, you, really close are here. We? okay yeah. all right i mean well, we can break well, this you can up fin- you can, can finish your yeah, I just I don't see an end in this <laughs> right now because I also want to talk to you about DMT, yeah. which isn't to do with what you. Yeah, well, I think so... you know, I think the DMT part of the conversation actually fits in uh, a better thing? with finally resolving the question of is there a trajectory to evolution? So, which requires... so maybe why, why don't you finish? kind of the thoughts that you have yeah. right now okay. and then i come back next week we'll do yeah. a second episode this is the first time i've done this we'll do a second episode yeah you're a very special person oh, and uh and and then we'll unpack a whole bunch of other sure. ideas um so so uh shoot go for it wrap wrap this beast up well okay so you know there's a uh, a certain amount of like unwrapping that happens in the process of wrapping, right? Right. Because um, this movement from the rational to the the integral state, you know, is um, is about starting to question that walled city of the rational individual 
this like author of your own destiny, this, you know, this, uh, in a, in a way it's like a higher octave of that hero of that mythic consciousness. You know, it's like, I am determining my own values. I'm not determining the values that I inherited from my culture. You know, I can arrive at a rational understanding a priori, you know, without, you know, knowing only the process of, of, of the scientific inquiry, I can determine all of the, the facts of reality as it exists out there, because there is this reality out there and I am here. And then what happened is we basically blew a hole in the side of that battleship, you know, in various ways, you know, in physics, it was uh, relativity theory and quantum theory in art. It was the emergence of, uh, you know, cubism, you know, in, uh, in music, it was the emergence of, uh, chromatic and atonal music. Suddenly everyone started looking outside of, of this sort of perfect system and realizing that there are all these other ways, these other, it was like a a new layer of that rediscovery of other cultures and not just recognizing that they exist, but really understanding that, that other cultures have equally valid ways of relating to reality, you know? And, and so we get into this around the same time we get the emergence of systems theory and complexity theory, you know, because, uh, a global society requires a, a complex systems understanding in order to exist within it. And, you know, and everybody gets back from world war two convinced, you know, this is like the, you know, really the first, uh, practical computers that we had were guidance systems for gun for bombs in, in world war two. And we get back and the people that came back had this whole new idea of how to, uh, view society as a system that could be managed, you know? And so you end up with people like uh, cyberneticist Gregory Bateson. And, you know, one of his things was saying, look, the, the human is, is not this discrete bounded object. You know, it's a, it's the intersection of all of these different uh, trajectories, these forces, these patterns, these wave fronts that meet and become this thing. And we tell a story about this thing, but that story can be traced out as far as you can possibly take it. And there's no place where you can say the story of this person has really stopped in any direction. He said, you know, if you look at um, a blind man with a cane and he's using that cane to feel his way around, where does his, where does he stop? Because he's using the cane as a sensory instrument, you know, and like, this is, that un- that level of understanding of the self as a pattern of information and a process without a clear boundary is taking over society these days. You know, I mean, you don't have to look any further than uh, the whole conversation about the way that as just as far as like rich terrain for standup goes, we are changing in relationship to the smartphone. Oh yeah. Which dropped like the atomic bomb in the lap of civilization. Yeah. And changed completely the way that Me- we relate to each meanwhile, other. Meanwhile, I'm performing to um to a room full of what our current understanding is is 200 human beings are sitting in front of me but here's this person on this phone and they're not in this <laughs> room <laughs> they are elsewhere they are somewhere else this person that we identify of as a human unfortunately for me 
Right. Well, which is which sort of gets back to, you know, this is a symptom of that same paradigm shift that we saw with, you know, in physics with quantum theory and relativity theory, because you're not able to give something a discrete particular location anymore. Like, is that guy in the seat or is he in a chat room? Where is that chat room? Where is the internet? You know, how much does it weigh? Someone told me it weighs as much as a strawberry. You know, <laughs> I don't know. So like, you know, I hope it weighs as much as a strawberry. So we, t- <laughs> well, <laughs> there's like all of the electrons in, in the internet oh, really? you know, as of like five years ago. Uh, ways, I, I'm not, I'm not going to toss that fact around. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> like it's a working theory. Though. Well, I mean, it works within the, the atmosphere of a particular right. set of assumptions. Right. 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 And I so know, it's cute though. It's the cute. Right. Fact of uh, the internet I've ever right. heard. I just want to just want to take a bite out of it. You know, uh, fruit of knowledge, beware. But uh, so basically, you know, bringing us up to speed, and then this is a fine place to pick up um, the next time that you and I talk. If we're going to talk about not only psychedelics, but mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about, you know, does evolution actually have a direction? Mm-hmm. You know, um, is that we're at a point now where all of the things that we use to orient ourselves throughout human history, you know, the unquestionable, infallible, absolute authority of the divine, you know, mythic uh, creator or, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the pinnacle of human reason, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the absolutely valued self-determination of the modern individual, you know, or really like I'm being PC. It was like the modern man to, you know, to exert his will in the world, you know, to make for himself something out of nothing, you know, that's all turned out to be bullshit. Yeah. You know, what we're realizing is that, that not only do I only end where my mind can handle telling that story of like, this is where I stop, you know, like basically it's a, it's a convenience for like, you know, if I, if I tried to like really tell the whole story of myself, I'd black out from like, my brain would just like eat all the sugar and I'd fall over, you know, because there's, there's no way that we can really comprehend all of the ways that we're interconnected. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, not even, uh, you know, keeping things scientific, even if you're, not talking about genes or anything else, even that you might not be consciously uh, aware of these processes, even just conscious processes that you're like, uh, oh, I know where I came from. I was um, I was a child uh, who grew up in Wisconsin. My parents were this and this way. This is how I was raised. All of these conscious things. That, uh, you know, I, I remember this very well. I, I had... Um, I, I've been talking about my act, this this um, weird plan that I had when I was 14 to try to make my dick look bigger to, to <laughs> girls. And it's like you consciously know these are experiences that you had in life and you can cons- consciously reflect on them and you can consciously think right now and be aware and uh, all of these experiences have shaped who I am. But in every moment, in every decision that you're making, you're not consciously processing, I'm making this decision right now because of this particular thing that happened when I was four years old. 
you know. Right. Plus, your memories are lies. Right. They're, and, they're, they're, they, they change every time you think about them. I thought that I had ridden in a helicopter until I was like 20. <laughs> and my dad was like, you've never, that's, I was like, I, I know for a fact that you have never ridden in a helicopter. And I was like, I probably have just seen Jurassic Park too many times. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's the, the, the story of how long it took me to crawl down a mountain from my uh, heels gets uh, more dramatized as we go on, and it's longer, and I'm more of a hero and less <laughs> at fault for my shitty decisions yeah. every time I tell the story. you know, 127 it, hours. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, I've joked about that before. I know it was 117 hours. Still very impressive. I'm sure it felt like a thousand hours. You want to say 127 hours, you go right ahead. You went through quite an ordeal. But I know damn well. I was like, I remember being in high school. It would have taken me half an hour to chew my arm off. It's like, so, I mean, you know, and there's, there's innumerable TED Talks for, you know, the people who are interested in this kind of stuff to look at all the ways that, that, you know, memory fails us. And, and, and then plus you got movies like Blade Runner, right? Where it's like, you could be a cyborg with implanted memories. And we're, you know, Lawrence Berkeley labs and DARPA are getting as close as possible. They're now at the point where they can actually transmit sensory information from brain to brain and they can using laser light, they can reprogram the brain of mice. So like by the time that you and I have kids our age if that's our fate um those kids will probably not even be going to school you know they will probably just be like you know downloading information matrix style off of you know because Mm -hmm. and then when that's a huge issue this is why i love sci-fi maybe we should get into this next time yeah but like i I think we should that's where that's where the floor really falls out from under the self yeah because it's like at any moment now we're just going to get into a whole nother thing and it's going to be like another half hour conversation so we might as well just make this another episode are you comfortable stopping now or did you yeah we can all right we'll do a part two next week but hey man thanks for stopping by oh absolutely oh um fun uh thanks for listening to the here we are podcast michael garfield uh listen to part two um uh, now here we This is part two of Michael Garfield, everybody. Um, I barely even remember exactly where we left off last week because we covered about everything that there is up until this point in our existence. And now we're going to be talking about going forward, um, what's going to happen, and also... um, the difference between now and last week is I uh, smoked DMT last night. Oh my goodness! And, um, and that, so so I feel right now I feel like my mind is quite open to uh, possibilities, oh, um, more so than it was last week. Maybe um, it had been since May or so, and so we gotta we gotta discuss that. We gotta talk about. Um, uh, what what do you have? You're more professional than me. You made all 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 of the notes. Yeah, um, it seems. Uh, what are we going over today? So, <laughs> last week we uh, we you suggested that we might disagree about whether or not evolution has a direction. So far, we're in I think pretty much agreement with everything that we've covered so far. 
And, and I wonder if we're going to diverge yeah. now. And, It'll and, be interesting if we do. Right. I, 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 I felt like I had to, to explain the entire history of human, the evolution of human consciousness right. in order to get us up to the point where we could talk about how it is that we determine that things are real mm-hmm. uh, so that you and I could come to some agreement, hopefully, about whether or not evolution has a direction. Because right now, <laughs> I feel like we're on the same page. Yeah, and, okay. And, um, well, but- that's good because you, you smoked DMT and I watched your stand-up. So we're, uh, we're, my, we're now my like stand up is a lot simpler than DMT. I could tell you how stand up works pretty easily. Um, DMT, not so much. So yeah, fair enough. But I think we we're a little, we've, we've kind of tuned in. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. You know, I went, I went in on the, the last one cold basically. Yeah. I wish that I had invited you to my show in Austin because I was talking all about DMT and perception and all this stuff, which is unlike a lot of the, my stuff you're going to find on the internet, which is much more catering to, um, there's, uh, there's Topher, um, size. I, you pronounce your last name. Sipes. I looked at your website. I checked out your art. It was awesome. My listeners should uh, check out. Uh, how do you spell it? Um, S-I-P-E-S. S-I-P-E-S. Like Sipes, I guess. Topersipes dot com. Yeah, awesome, awesome work and like logos and crazy stuff, and it was awesome. I liked the guitar guy with like all the stuff coming out of his guitar. That was awesome. Um, good work. Uh, all right. Uh, we have to do this thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll catch up afterwards. This is a very, this is the loosest my podcast has ever been, which is good because I'm often talking to academics and some of them are really loose. And then some of them are like, uh, just aren't, don't know what's going to happen or, and are sometimes they have to be careful about what they say. And which is probably, um, some of the, what we talked about last week, some of your issues with academia, um, the, the caution that you right. have, to have. Well, for, for anyone who doesn't know, cause you don't know, cause this is audio only. I'm very intimidating in person <laughs> and Shane is a brave, brave man uh. for sitting here with me. It's, this is a huge Oak desk, you know, <laughs> mahogany bookshelves, lots of awards. Paint me a picture. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you know, is this real? what you're talking about right now <laughs> well we need third-party verification you know <laughs> this is this we need you know this is a, a hypothesis we need to experiment on it but anyway so the notes that i took um were that we left off at postmodernism and the deconstruction of the self mm-hmm. and how this relates to uh the dmt experience and science fiction as well as ultimately the question of does evolution have a direction Okay. You know, because here we are, and we're in a time in history where pretty much the the rug has been ripped out from under us. You know, there's argument over whether or not history even exists, because everybody's history is sort of their own history. I'm feeling divergence already. Well, it's like, you know, out a little bit. Okay, so, so, you know, a big part (laughs) of the movement in the, the philosophical movement in the 20th century was... Uh, recognizing that the winners write history. Right. And so there is no such thing as history as like 
a, a concrete absolute object that exists out there. Right. You know, and the same thing in quantum physics, you know, they're like, well, hold on. If this experiment changes because we're observing it, then right. there's no such thing as an objective reality. Basically, at least there's no way for us to, it's not practical for us to relate to reality as if it exists exclusively out there. You know, there's always some element of the observer or the relativity of, you know, things between observers and cultures and languages and right. You know, but I mean, it isn't quantum physics is is operating on like a different level than say neurochemistry or something like that, which is orders of magnitude larger than what quantum physics is operating. Well, on. Um, I mean, that's the sort of common I, understanding. I but, don't know enough. But about there, there physics. is there is research. You know, at the uh, you know, at the margins of every discipline that show macro scale, like everyday life scale quantum stuff that's going on. They, there was some research uh, a year or two ago that was actually observable, like visible quantum stuff where you could, they were showing through a microscope, look, this, this object is in two places at one time, Yeah, you know, and uh, a lot of the things that are starting to pop up as statistically regular in in the uh, hotly contested field of psi research, you know, like psychic phenomena, mm-hmm. um, may in fact be uh, related to macro scale quantum stuff. And there's there's actually a really interesting interpretation of quantum theory that I kind of hold, which is that um, that the quantum weirdness of things is basically a relative to the scale at which it's being observed. So like we, it isn't that there is one reality and that there's like a realm of potential. It's that we actually exist simultaneously in all these other timelines and that there is an even greater perspective that's able to, to look and observe multiple dimensions that that's, we're in that's the way that i felt last night on exactly. DMT. That's, well, exactly. that's that's for sure but i get really swept up in it you know yeah. and i think that I, I i do think that you know i i i take off like my lab coat and everything else and i smoke dmt and i try to uh, i try to just report what i'm seeing and feeling and and without judgment which is impossible to do um but i just try to be open to the experience mm-hmm. and everything else but then afterwards Things do get reeled in a bit for me, and I do think that uh, it, here here's a few things with one DMT and and two your what you're saying right now. It, mm-hmm. it, it, this overall feeling about, um, I guess it's just that I don't get excited about mm-hmm. much of anything, and, <laughs> and so the idea that. Um, I just think that for so long, people are like, this is an exciting time. You know, uh-huh. people are e- either saying this is an exciting time or this is the end of times. Mm-hmm. And I never think it's any of those uh, times. I don't think anyone's ever experiencing any of that. Right. Um, and and regarding like DMT, which um, my I mean. Last night, I smoked it. I went into what seemed like... Um, I, I listened to the song, and the, and the guy that played me the song after, afterwards was like, what, what did you think about that song? I was like, well, it's good. I just wish that you would have played me one without words so that I would have known like what I was feeling and interpreting. And he goes, oh, there wasn't any words in that song. <laughs> I was like, what the 
fuck, man. And I wish, because I just dismissed them as being part of the song. I wasn't paying attention. I'm like, oh, damn it. I wish I would have listened. I know there was, the beginning was something like, um, it was something like, this is existence, this is infinity. And then this thing just exploded. And it was like everything that there was on all of these different levels. And then there was like this fucking weird, like everything was like in motion and working together perfectly. But then there's like this weird party going on. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I was just kind of observing this. And, and I'd be like, what, what's going on here? And this thing would be like, well, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, you know what this is. It's everything, and this is like don't don't worry about it because this is all just going to keep on happening again. So just you know, let it happen. Uh. You see, you can see now that this is all just going to happen over and over again. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. And then, and then, like that's exactly. And in that moment, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly that is the truth. That's reality. And I come back. And I'm like, god damn, that was profound, and that was. I'm convinced that was extremely convincing. And then, you know, a day goes by and I kind of reel things in. So this is, this is a thought experiment for you that this is what I would like you to talk about mm-hmm. um, and address and regarding being excited about um, new quantum theories and all of that stuff. So imagine a person who lives their whole existence in, in like this DMT perspective, mm-hmm. right? And then one day... Uh, his friends give him this drug that he can smoke to bring us into this reality, this perception uh-huh. that we're seeing. And it only lasted for 10 minutes. This reality and perception would seem just as profound, just as important to be like, oh my God, I get it now. There's this structure. See, there's, there's like this hierarchy and all you have to do, you work a little bit and you step on a few toes, but you be nice. <laughs> and, and, and there's like this boss man, but you can be a boss. If you just work harder, we can all be boss men. You just have to work hard and be dedicated and learn and blah, blah, blah. There's a structure to everything. And then, you know, and, and then it would drift off and you'd be uh-huh. like, oh, well, hello again. The hyperspace, boring old hyperspace, yeah. you know, and that would seem per- completely boring um, to you, you know? So, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just think that I, I, that's how I calm myself down whenever I get too worked <laughs> up about any of these uh, things. Those are, that's a lot of me talking um, there and a lot of stuff to address. And yeah. So, well, um, this is cool because you gave me the, the inroad to weaving right, the good. sci-fi into this, right? Good. Um, so so the, the connection is through the fact that uh, basically... You know, if you were to take somebody like Ben Franklin, even somebody that regarded as a genius from like a couple hundred years ago and like bring them forward in time to today, it would be a total nightmare of crazy. They'd, they'd be having that kind of, you know, psychedelic experience. Right. You know, nothing would make any sense. All these extra dimensions of layers of reality and everything's time and space have collapsed. You That's know, a good point. And um, so there's one of the one of the things that, uh, you know, you people tend to play with was there, there, there seems to be this, uh, dimensionality with mm-hmm. respect to, uh, stepping outside of time and looking down on the temporal landscape in some way. 
with these experiences. I mean, that's how it felt to right. that side. It was like, yeah, there was no time or space. There's just like this thing and it's everything that there is and it's all concepts and it's all one thing and it's all, we're all a part of it. And it's, right. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, and, and so there is, uh, you know, going back to this issue of the physics, this notion of the singularity, you mm-hmm. know, which sort of pervades all of the discussion about tryptamine consciousness and tryptamine space, you know, cause for those who, uh, I imagine pretty much everybody listening to your podcast knows this already, but DMT is mm. produced in the human brain. No, I, I don't think uh, I would like to. Yeah, the let's let's so. let's get down to the brass tacks of this because I was like in drug class the other night for the county, <laughs> and they I were want to talk about that. And too. they were, uh, you know, this the, the guy actually wrote up on the on the board like ayahuasca. Anybody know what that is? Because I just found out the other day, uh, and it, it, it's constantly surprising to me that here we are in the midst of this you know, this revolution of knowledge and information, and yet it's little pockets of stuff, right? This you know? drug expert, quote unquote, didn't right. know about ayahuasca. Right. So so dimethyltryptamine or DMT is produced in the human brain as well as in the brains of, you know, FYI, I've never talked about DMT or any of this okay. stuff on the podcast. So. All right. So it's something that occurs throughout nature. It's all over the animal world. It's all over the vegetable world. Um, you know, various... Modifi- modifications of it are, you know, what are responsible for magic mushrooms and ayahuasca. Um, but it's, it's produced in the brain and it seems to be something that is, uh, it's related to the melatonin cycle. So it's related to, uh, our psych, our circadian rhythm and like our waking and dreaming and deep dreamless sleep. And so, which means you don't remember shit. Right. Well, right, right. <laughs> so there's this thing about, about, you know, for people who have no experience in this area, there's something about the dreamlike state of consciousness. And, um, you know, cognitive neuroscientists have basically determined that there's a part of your brain that the, the, that is responsible for that dreamlike perception that's active all the time. But when you go to sleep and you're dreaming, quote unquote, it's disconnected from sensory input. So like the part of your brain that's, that's like the imagination part of, of you. And this is like more than one module. It's like, you know, several pieces working together in synchrony. Um, but that pattern of neural activity is in certain ways kind of on all the time. And so when, so waking consciousness basically is dreaming tethered to the senses, you know? So it's like, it's the patterns and the, the, uh, the color and the, the sort of bloom of it, but it's limited to the specific range of inputs, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like imagination constrained by reality. And then when you go to sleep, then that, that, uh, train is like shunted onto another rail and your senses are no longer going into that, that, uh, valve as it were. And so that part of yourself is free to just sort of go off the hook and, and imagine all kinds of things. It still seems like, um, the difference between like a dream, which is often for me, just I'll be dreaming about this podcast is, is like, you know, just basically as if we were still talking or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then it can be like, uh, clowns chasing me because he wants to murder me or something like that. But it's that's still quite real in the sense that it's things that I have seen in my life where DMT is a thing that I have definitely not. Well, here's the thing about that seen. is that um, 
there is a range of sort of the like mundaneness of dream phenomena mm-hmm. and uh that range seems to vary um there was an Australian researcher several years ago who cross correlated the bizarritude of his dreams every night with the intensity of the geomagnetic activity, like the basically like magnetic storms and the intensity of electrical flow from the air to the ground mm-hmm. in his area of Australia. And what he found was that the nights where there was the weakest magnetic activity in the area, so the, the nights when his basically his brain would have been more sort of subject to the penetration of cosmic rays and other stuff beyond the planet was those were the nights that he was having the craziest dreams. So there's, there's, and then I want to see the methodology. Well, it was, I mean, he, he actually, he used a scale, like he, he reported all his dreams. He he wrote them all down and he used a scale of how strange it was. And then after he recorded several hundred dreams, he ran a statistical analysis. Oh, I see. You know, um, but then there's also the fact that, um, you know, there is what, what you call state specific memory, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, in the sort of, um, you know, the indigenous medicine traditions around the world, they have this thing where, you know, there are, you know, DMT Shane is actually sort of on his own developmental trajectory, you know, and there are things that you're going to forget yeah. until you go back to that place mm-hmm. and then they become immediately obvious again. And so you take step two immediately. Obvious. And then, yeah. yeah and then, yeah. and then you go back the next time and you take step three, but then oh, like, yeah. this time, I mean, last night I felt like I made real progress. Right, right, yeah. right. But that, you know, but the thing is that, that, uh, that state of consciousness is so different that there, you, you don't have the, the reference points in your ordinary consciousness, you know, like you'll have dreams where every night you, it's the same kind of situation, right? Where, you know, like, uh, I'm in this story that's taking place, but it's only taking place a little bit every night. And then I'll go back to sleep and I'll, I'll show up back up in that building with that same cast of characters and that drama will proceed another step further, you know? Mm. And I think that there's at least been in my experience that, um, I have to kind of learn to navigate those non-ordinary spaces or what, you know, Stan Groff called non-ordinary consciousness, um, from square one. And that, that means like learning to stand up, yeah. you know, really like fundamentally basic things that you've never done in this state of consciousness before. So you have to do them over. You know, it's- I've told people this about mushrooms, but mushrooms, I feel like is much more tethered to this reality, uh, than, than D- I mean, you come down from a DMT trip and it feels like a mushroom trip and it's like, Oh, well that's nothing. Um, but, um, I, 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 have told people one of the things that I've gained from taking mushrooms is my ability to navigate my emotional states uh-huh. because mushrooms, especially in the beginning, just throw you all over the place or for right, me anyway, yeah. emotionally. And it's like, I'm sad out of nowhere and angry out of nowhere and hurt and happy and ecstatic and laughing and all of these range of emotion, just kind of spinning out of control. And then the more you do it, the more you kind of get a sense of things and how, I mean, for me, it just felt like, well, all of this is just these arbitrary kind of chemical signals and I can learn to navigate any of it. And that's helped me yeah. navigate this. Well, you reality. know, the, the thing, the thing is, you know, the, the value psychotherapeutic value of 
this kind of experience, at least with mushrooms, you know, mm-hmm. is that you're able to, um, because it relaxes the, the, the valve on unconscious emotional material, you know, and allows more of this repressed subliminal content to emerge and like upwell into your awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a way for people to reconcile parts of themselves that they have denied for years or perhaps their entire life, you know? So it's, it, yeah. it is, and it, oftentimes it is scary. And it, I think it's kind of funny when people say, well, I don't want to do that because I'm afraid of the bad trip. You know, it's like, well, that's exactly the point. The bad trips are the, are really the good trips Yeah. when it comes down to like, this isn't about having fun. You know, this isn't, you know, in most cases, you know, you look at, um, you know, the, the historical traditions, you know, like the, the, the Mazatec curanderas that are working with this stuff. Um, it's not about having fun. Right, you know, right, it's, right. It's, that's it's, what I tell people. It's like, you know, with other drugs, cocaine and everything else, it's like, well, I don't trust anything that makes me feel good. That's what I, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like about mushrooms is like, I got to force myself to take a mushroom. Yeah. DMT scares the shit out of me every time, every single time. I'm just like, am I really going to do this right now? Oh, I can't, I can't. Right. And that's, that's where, that's where, uh, I'm reading this book right now. Um, I've been chewing on it for years. It's just such a beautiful read and it's so well, so well articulated. Um, Darwin's pharmacy, sex plants and the evolution of the newosphere by Richard Doyle. He's an information science and rhetoric professor at, uh, Penn state. And he has written a lot of books about, um, like nanotechnology and transhumanism. And he teaches classes in science fiction but this particular book is about the what he believes his hypothesis about the evolution between human consciousness and specifically human language and the complexity of human language and the ingestion of psychedelic plants and fungi and he basically says that what we witness is that anytime anybody comes back from these experiences they just like tear off on a rant trying to explain the thing that they know they cannot possibly explain, Mm -hmm. you know, but that, you know, when I was in the DMT land last night, I was like, I I was like uh, being, I was about to just start ranting like a maniac, like this is everything. This is everything that there is. And then like on the, in the, uh, in the corner, like if I'm looking at a screen and just the bottom corner, like a little closed captioning, um, kind of thing. <laughs> there, there was like this little finger that went up to, uh, like a, a mouth, just like a, a little, it's, it's okay. Don't worry. And it's just like, you know, tell and, and it was just like, you know, go, go ahead and tell some people, but don't go raving out in the street like a lunatic. <laughs> just wait, wait to get it on your podcast. Yeah. 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 And, and make where I'm trying to get very professional, well respected right. academics. And I'm, I'm raving like a lunatic about hallucinogens. Um, but it's an important part of my life and something well, that see the thing about that, the more. thing that, the thing that he was saying that he is, he's ta- he's saying in this book, he's suggesting that, um, that what he calls ecodelics, he wants to create a new word for it because he says, you know, the words that we use, uh, these substances, whether it's LSD or, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or DMT or whatever, they create a state of consciousness that's much more suggestible and programmable 
than waking consciousness, which has all of these emotional boundaries around it. And so the words that we use even to describe the substances themselves are so critical to the experience that we actually have in the trip. Right. You know, so he suggested the term ecodelic because he says what these are doing, if you look, if you look across the, you know, the buffet line of these substances is that there's sort of pushing your own ordinary ego structure to one side or zooming out from it a little bit. And you're seeing the feedback loops between your subject, between yourself and the environment. And you're seeing how the, your thoughts are conditioning your thoughts and how your inner, your space is conditioning your space and how your thoughts are conditioning your experience of reality. And you're starting to see the sort of porousness or the, you know, that fractal boundary between the inner world and the outer world, you know? So he's making, he's saying it, it, what it does is it conditions us to think in complex terms about these ecological systems of which the self is only a part, you know, and this is especially true with, uh, you know, substances like ayahuasca or psilocybin. So uh, first off, I I was just going to let this go, but, um, uh, we should just address fractal boundaries. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so just, just so people know what we're talking about. So, uh, let me give a very simplified version of what I think you're saying and, huh? and something that I think people will grab onto and then you can go ahead and correct me and complicate it or whatever. Um, so there's like a point between water um, just being liquid and boiling and you can't find exactly what that point is and you can kind of like zoom in and zoom in on Uh it and just keep going but you can't find exactly where that space is and there's a lot of energy right in that space that's that's released and is that a metaphor ish for yeah yeah i mean the whole thing about fractal is like a it's an abbreviation of fractional dimension Mm -hmm. meaning that there isn't that straight line boundary between something and something else in nature you know what we actually observe is is like if if you, people saw the I Heart Huckabees that film where I've seen it. Dustin Hoffman grabs this kid at one scene in the movie and he says, "There's no real boundary between me and you." Like if you look closer and closer and closer, you know, it's like just imagine that there's all these little particles. But but what are those particles made out of? And what's what's made out of them? And what's made out of them? And there's no space and there's no floor. Ultimately, like we we can't find the the foundation, the solid foundation of reality. It's just like we. The uh, one of the original metaphors used to describe fractals was how long is the coastline of Britain? Because if you right. take a, a yardstick, you're going to get one answer because you're going to have you, you, you'll have a uh, if you draw a straight line from A to B, it's going to be you know however many miles. It's like well, it's you know the length of that yardstick has a certain measurement error associated with it because you're not right. catching the the border of every rock. But then if you get a tinier little thing and you're measuring, it's still like still zoom in and that rock's made so of smaller things and smaller things. Because you're using a smaller instrument right. tool. Right. So, you know, there's all of these different sciences that cropped up in the last 150 years have come to some realization or other about that and about how, like we were saying in the last podcast, like, you know, um, I my experience, my emotional experience is... Uh, in some way like connected to or dependent on the things that I learn are happening to other people on the other side of the planet through my little phone. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I find out that people in Hong Kong are having a revolution right now. And I'm like, go, go humanity, you know? And, right. and so where is, you know, where does their personal subjective reality stop and mine begin? Yeah, but in, in, in a way, too, it, it's also a little bit of like an input and output. I mean, it's easy to get swept up in this is um, they are part of me and I am part of them and all of that. But it's at the same time, ideas it could be considered a product mm-hmm. of your mind that is put out there and then it's input for other people and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily connected except down to that fractal state that you're talking about right. i recognize that but 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 it's no more i mean that idea is no more um you than than the carbon that you breathe is you after it's left you and is out there uh, again sans, sans well the here's the thing state. about that that notion of out there right is out right. there is a working is like a very stable working hypothesis for human beings in waking consciousness in the modern mind, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't, but see like the magical mind doesn't think that way. You know, the magical mind has draws no boundary, you know, we're going back to our earlier conversation about like sort of earlier forms of human consciousness. Mm -hmm. That boundary is something that we, we learned to, to create, you know, a few thousand years ago. And even today, not every human being thinks that way. You know, the whole idea of magical consciousness is like obvious in a three-year-old who thinks that, you know, if they draw a picture of, you know, somebody killing their mom and then something horrible happens to their mom, they think that they caused it, you know, because it's this, this sort of naive association without like a really rigorous understanding of, causal chains of effect so like this whole issue of out there is something that we've arrived at through a scientific inquiry but it's not the end of the scientific inquiry you know like the scientific inquiry over the last last you know few you know like i said like about 150 years is showing that the the boundary between in here and out there is really really wrong um i mean it's it's sort of like you know uh, a certain level of like, you know, like the Newtonian physics works for most physics problems right. yeah, at the yeah. baseball level, yep. you know, but when you really get down into it, you know, my, um, you know, for example, the Supreme Court is now s- suggesting that cell phones, uh, they're, they're starting to make rulings about uh, what is essentially like cyborg law and saying that the cell phone is essentially a modular prosthetic for a person. You know, because we rely on it now so much that it, we're like a lot, you know, a billion people are psychologically dependent on these devices as cognitive prosthetics because they need them in order to think in the way that they think on a day to day basis in their lives. So, like, and, and if you look at it like on an electromagnetic basis, you know, the electromagnetic field of your body, which extends, you know, just past the reach of your fingertips, mm-hmm. um, that phone is inside that field all day, you know? So in a sense, it already is kind of an implant, you know, it's, it's in you all the time, you know? So, I mean, it really, again, it gets back to this issue of where do you draw the line, you know, and that line being something that doesn't exist a priori, right. But it exists as 
you know, like according to a particular method of relating to the information that you experience, you know, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to draw the line at myself here for certain purposes and here for other purposes. And that understanding is the ecodelic understanding. Like that's that flexibility, that understanding that, that inside and outside are ideas instead of hard realities is Mm. sort of like the, probably one of the most important lessons of the psychedelic experience. And that's the point that Rich Doyle's making in his book. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I guess it's just um, like I get the fact of uh, separation, but but I, I guess I, I guess I understand the boundaries a, a little bit. I I think um, it, you know the the different dimensions, the different perspectives. Um, uh, it, it's it, I, I don't know how to. Say. I I just what I don't see is like the. I think the merging is getting overly complicated. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, um, say there's a cheetah running and you still photograph this cheetah and, uh-huh. and you could really break it down and be like, right now, this is this cheetah in this moment of time with its arm like this. And right here, this is this cheetah in this next moment of time and its arm is like that and what's the boundary and at a certain point i'm like well i just don't give a shit it's just a cheetah um so exactly uh, well i mean that's exactly it is that is that uh you know the the boundary is where our ability to hold the question open falls apart like where we where we decide that for all practical purposes that's good enough. You because know? a lot of our perceptions in, say, this reality are quite good at getting us through this oh, yeah. reality. You I know? mean, that, and that's the, that's the reason that, that uh, cliche and stereotype are so hard to eradicate is because they're useful. They're socially mm-hmm. adaptable, you know, yeah. for most purposes. It's that you know, 0.001% that's right. like causing a whole lot of problems. Right. You got to, you know, the, the uh, white raven or the black swan, these things do exist, you know. You know, so you've got your... Uh, situations where and that's the thing is that that was the difference between sort of the uh fundamentalist you know concrete absolutist state of consciousness that was all wrapped up in in reality as literally defined by a mythic text and then the the more scientific modern consciousness that came out and was like well there are exceptions there are always exceptions and it's not going to break my brain to realize that there are always exceptions to the rule you know, so right. you went from that sort of absolute morality where, you know, thou shalt not kill to utilitarian morality where you're like, wow, I really have to puzzle over this question. Is it is it ethical to kill one person in order to save 10? Right. You know, that's those are going to be my values. Right, you know, and that's right. like a, that's a quantum leap in human understanding, you know, from that thing to that other thing. So. So, you know, there it's not uh, I don't want to give anyone the impression that they're you know the 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 movie I, I, I guess I'm just like I don't want to confuse things too much. Yeah. And I don't want to I don't want anyone to dismiss this as just like a bunch of crazy talk, you know, which is uh, very easy for people to do. Well, know? yeah. I mean and and, uh, and and you know whatever some people are just going to do that anyway, and so you know we can let them go. 
but but I I do I don't know. It, it's it's tough, you know. I, if I smoke DMT right now, I'll be like, "You're absolutely," you know. I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, like, uh, it, but then, but right now, I'm I'm thinking some of this stuff is just overly complicating. Well, um, I mean, here's the thing: is that is that uh, you don't need to do drugs in order to have this understanding, right? 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 You know. In fact, uh, this- I mean, I feel like I have a much deeper questioning kind of understanding of uh, of perception than your ordinary person taking life at right face value. and so. and doing drugs is not going to get you there right, on right, its right. own i did that since i was a very little kid right I was you know things. i mean really it's like any other technology you know and it those technologies I like that you just called it a technology and i am going to use that <laughs> well and you should and you should because you know any technology can be used to heal or can be used to harm right you know and any any technology especially the you know the the most sophisticated the most powerful technologies are the you know the easiest to abuse you know so i you know i loved uh the Bill Hicks thing where he's, you know, the headline about, you know, guy jumps out window on LSD yeah, yeah. and he's like, good. He's like, yeah. get out of here. You're ruining it for everyone else. Right, right. You know, there's, there is, uh, it's like sex in some sense is a technology, uh, that, you know, that evolution has created in order to, uh, accelerate its computations and so you know sex is one of these technologies that comes without an owner's manual and and uh for that reason it's it's very dangerous but it's also it also has a capacity to be very healing for those who know what they're doing with it and the same thing is true of psychedelics you know i think sex is a lot of lies (laughs) i think a (laughs) lot of it is like a dangling carrot uh getting us to um, pay a tremendous cost to ourselves as individual organisms as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, uh, if you realize that you're, and this is, this is where, you know, getting back to rich Doyle's whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about the, the pollen that the flower is sort of a sexual invitation to the bee, right? you know, and in the same way, the, the like rapture or the ecstasy of the psychedelic experience is sort of what tricks us into having this or, or, you know, the, our sexual attraction to another person is what tricks us into having this boundary dissolving experience. Because for most of the time that very clear I'm over here and you're over there boundary is the practical solution to the question of how do I make sense of all of these this experience going and then on. mating season rolls around right. and everything just goes out the fucking right. Window. And then you're like, well, I don't and know, maybe eat mushrooms and everything yeah, goes out the window. Maybe maybe we are inside of one another. I don't <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know. So I mean, but but the thing is that that um, that there are there are all of these lures in nature that right. encourage the dissolution of boundaries because the dissolution of boundaries is what allows for this uh, like multiplying or combinatorial effect, you know, where mm-hmm. You get, you know, it's not just I'm going to clone my own line infinitely forever, you know, and accumulate genetic errors. It's like, you know, all of the lessons that my lineage has accrued and all the lessons that yours have accrued can can join together. And and, uh, sex seems to be evolution's answer to how, you know, how can we speed things up? 
Yeah, or how can we um, evade parasites? It's a know? yeah. It's it a might, it super could be creative. As simple as that, though, it, it could be as simple as need a, a, a diversity created out of necessity for uh, changing. Oh, and it is, it is that simple. It is that it is that simple. simple. I mean, you know, parasites but, are just one example of you know the 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 number of threats that having a more rapid and malleable genetic. At adaptation, right, will you know work around changing the locks on the old immune system every generation, right, right, you know, and you know parasites and and disease and mm-hmm. you know, but also any other adaptation is much more likely. Any other beneficial adaptation is much more likely to to uh, penetrate a population, you know, and suffuse it in those circumstances because things are getting mixed around. It doesn't just yeah, but there's like just a whole lot of crap out there before to get to those good things. Well, yeah, and I think that's part of like uh, getting. Uh, I think that's when. I mean, I ad- I admire like the hope and the positivity in everybody, and I think like that's part of like the human condition. And I just um, uh, don't see it the way uh, uh, a lot of people do. like even even scientists that are we're using the scientific method and blah mm. blah blah it's like um and and we're we're completely you know we're trying to be unbiased and we're not trying to prescribe anything and blah 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 you're you're still you're still uh, like if you're writing a pop science book you there's still this need to be like just remember, we are all evolutionary success stories. We all made it here three and a half billion years of successful reproduction. I, was like, I didn't do any of that shit. I, I'm, I'm just here. And, yeah. and it's a I circular argument. You know, you're great. here because you're here. You know. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know. Just philosophically, I, I just I think that anything outside of. Um, of a neutral state, I I use caution. Oh well, um, I don't I don't want to give you the idea that I'm like a positive person, right? No, and, and, I'm not, and I don't mean to be shitting on positivity either. Well, I mean, I'm just I, I'm just trying to sort it out. I just re- I'm mean, I'm reading also uh, the Clock of the Long Now by Stuart Brand. It's a book about the Long Now Foundation, mm-hmm. which is uh, a, a group of people looking at. How do we get human beings to take a more long-term perspective? Because that's the kind of perspective we need now. Right. Because the deal, the problems that we're dealing with are so complex, mm-hmm. you know. And we need to start thinking about the effects and the consequences that our actions are going to have, you know, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand years out, or we're going to very quickly flush ourselves down the toilet, yeah. you know. So. Uh, one of the things, sure. one of the things that he talked about in in the chapter I just read was how um, if you believe that things are getting better, you're more likely to make an investment in in life. You know, if you think things are getting worse, you're more likely to smash and grab because it's all going to hell anyway. Take what you can while you can. You know, yeah. And so, but but, but sometimes, says, and I'm not going to romanticize negativity. Yeah. But sometimes anxiety and shit gets our bills paid. Well, know? right. Well, right. What he said is that in basically, you know, the sort of the paradoxical resolution of those two perspectives is that if you look over the short term, it does seem like things are always getting worse a little bit. You know that that things are kind of you know, always breaking down and, and the people that you love are dying and everything that you're familiar with is falling apart. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, to over me, the it's long just term, that neither. It's, it's just over the long term, and he's he's speaking as sort of like a psychological average, right, right. you know. Okay. Over the long term, you know, you can throw the Steven Pinker argument, you know, that we're living in the safest time that there's ever been, right. you know, that that the health and the longevity and the education and all these things are better now on average per person than they ever were in human history. Mm-hmm. Lowest per capita murder, you know, most comfortable lives. And he's a bright guy making a lot of fantastic points. And, yeah. and there's just a lot of varying ways to so, look at it. So, uh, you know, he, what he, what he kind of suggests is that what we're seeing is a long-term gradual improvement made out of short-term catastrophic failure, you know? And and so he suggests mm-hmm. that rather than optimism or pessimism, that there might be a more realistic point of view call, that he calls tragic optimism, you okay. know? And one that, I'm, I'm into that. Yeah, one that resolves them both. So, so uh, you know, in the situation... By the way, we have about 15 minutes. Okay. So I'll, I'll zip it so right. you can get so, your... Well, so the situation with, with, uh, you know, sex or evolutionary adaptation, and and let's talk about sex specifically because sex was basically a move on the, the part of DNA to go from just like a, an additive iteration based. And we're now using shorthand for like, uh, applying some conscious process. No, 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 no. You don't have to, you don't have to get conscious with it. But like, right. you know, just in terms of like the mathematical description of the, of the system right. is that we went from more of an additive to a multiplicative way of evolving, you mm-hmm. know, where it's not just that the, the genes, uh, you know, might mutate and then those mutations accrue additively over generations, but that those mutations are actually being multiplied against one another through sexual repo- recombination. So... Um, Martin Nowak, who now works at Harvard in the 2000 to 2004, wrote a series of papers at Princeton about the evolution of language and syntax. And this is where we get into the issue of does evolution have a direction? Um, And what he said was that basically, mathematically, even though we can't really study this in the fossil record, we know that there must have just in the, in terms of the relationship between the environment the social organization of group living primates and the complexity of the human brain that there must have gotten to a point where the number of things that we had to talk about was greater than our ability to remember a new word for every unique situation. And that's when we evolved syntax because it's easier to remember three things and two ways two rules two like grammatical rules than it is to remember eight things in you know right. so so you get with language you get or what we think of as language you know which is like sentences and paragraphs you get the same kind of multiplying factor and you get the same kind of evolutionary benefit but it's not a purely good thing it's like a crystal that forms out of a conflict between the organism as it is and the complexity of the environment that it has to navigate, you know? So it's not exactly that it's beneficial, you know? And in the same way, um, you know, when we were talking last week about the evolution of the city and how the city created the class structure of society Mm -hmm. and created all these different rules and it, 
it forced a specialization of labor because basically, uh, you know, what we're sort of, you know, this undifferentiated mass of cells in the social organism, you know, like a very simple, um, there's a, there's a plant called Volvox. That's just a sphere of identical cells and it floats around in the water column and photosynthesizes. And that's basically like what the earliest human tribal structure was. Everybody was sort of more or less doing the same roles, had the same jobs, you know? And then as that thing got involved in a a much, much larger organism, you know, those tribes came together to form these, these city structures. Then suddenly, you know, I know how to bake, ceramics, but I don't know how to read and I don't know how to, you know, fight a war. And so this is where there's, there's a, there's a, there's a a current that's discussed in philosophical literature and, you know, esoteric spiritual traditions, but for the most part has been unfortunately left out of the biological discourse. And that, that current gets back to your initial thought experiment. It's called involution. And it's the movement of matter, energy, information from a higher level to a lower level of order. It's not, uh, it's basically, you know, you can use like a, they, I think they sorted out that you can use a thousand words to describe basically anything. Like they figured out that here, they boiled the language down to a thousand words you can use. Mm -hmm. And if you know these thousand words in whatever language, you can just communicate anything that you need to to that person um so you're talking about like an infinite amount of ideas being funneled through a thousand little base words well see it's like what what seems to be happening is that what we think of as you know this mysterious emergence of order for those of us you know for, for those people who see you know evolution as this like march of progress up from the slime you know from very simple organisms to complex organisms living alongside simple organisms, which is not a, you know, it's not just a linear, uh, you know, increase in the complexity of individuals, but in the com- the nonlinear increase in the complexity of the entire ecosystem, the entire biosphere is now vastly more complex than it was, you know, to a billion years ago. Um, that, that, uh, March of complexity is, in some sense, balanced by an increased specification and specialization and is, uh, you know, in, in, to, to go back to the, the issue of the city, you know, we are in some ways much, much greater intelligences and in other ways much lesser intelligences than we were 50,000 years ago. Like the brain has actually gotten smaller than it was 50,000 years ago. And it's because of uh, there's actually a, a a marked decrease as we learn to write, as we learn to store things outside of ourselves, as we learn to communicate with other human beings, as we learn to to outsource and distribute knowledge, you know. And so, like, it seems like you know the brain is going to get even smaller as we're starting to you know Google and Wikipedia everything, you know, because less and less of that cognitive function has to exist in us, Mm. you know? And so what we're developing are these more rarefied cognitive functions, you know, the correlation of data, the pattern seeking, you know, and there's a really excellent 
TED Talk that I, I hear you go. I would have to Google to tell you who the guy actually was who gave it. But you can Send look this it up. Send to me and I'll post it on Yeah, you can, you can look this up. It's, uh, it's about the difference in IQ tests 100 years ago from IQ tests now. You know, So what he says is that basically people are much more capable of thinking in terms of um, abstracts, relationships, and they don't, you know, they're not uh, as stuck in like concrete thinking as they were. But back then, people had a much more grounded practical intelligence than they do now, you know. And that's that's I'd say that's fairly common sense, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, it seems to me like evolution. If we, you know, we kind of blew it, and we probably don't have time to really get into it. But like, it seems to me like evolution doesn't just have one direction. You know, it, evolution's job is, you know, if you want to talk about it that way, it's that's loose, right. but. What evolution does is it just simplifies right. things to talk about is, it in this way. We know what, what evolution does is it happening. it optimizes for all possible directions. You know, it's really it's really a an engine of recombinant creativity, and it's it's trying to find the best way to manage the flow of energy and information through the system. You know, so the flower emerges as a response given a particular chemical context to the sunlight and the chemical ingredients of that environment, you know, because you're going to get a better flow down the, the energy waterfall, you know, what, you know, you know, you're going to maximize entropy, which is the, you know, the, the increase of disorder by maximizing the order of that particular system, you know, like we're much more orderly and, and intelligent than the life that was on the planet a billion years ago. But we're also requiring vastly more energy and creating much greater disorder at the same time, you know. So it's it's both. Its evolution is is leading both into higher states of order and requiring greater and greater states of of chaos in order to to manage it. And then and that's where you get into this whole issue of the you know the boundary again, hmm. you know, because basically the only way that you can say evolution is going one way or the other is if you draw a frame around the universe at some level and you say, that's where we're going to stop. And, you know, if, is the universe running down into nothing? Well, we might be able to answer that question if we could find the end of the universe. But until we can, all we know is that the universe is constantly crystallizing order and that that order in the process of, of emerging is creating additional entropy. You know, so if anything, it's just at least locally where we can observe it happening on our planet, that process is just accelerating. It's not, uh, it's just intensifying both order and disorder. It's not, you know, the, this, the scales remain equal, you Mm -hmm. know? So as sort of disjunct from that, your original question about, um, you know, the guy smoking you DMT. Use the, you use this five minutes anyway that uh, any way that you want to, and we'll and we'll meet up again next time on yeah. the phone and we'll chat again. All right. Well, so that that guy, uh, you know, in your your thought experiment that mm-hmm. you know that uh, takes some drug that sh- you know he ends up in the body of Shane Moss, uh, <laughs> and he's like, wow, you know, I, I gotta go to a gig and gotta drive my car to get from place to place. So Alan Watts had this fantastic quote, it's very easy to find online, about lucid dreaming. And he says, you know, imagine that you're just a master 
dreamer and that you have increasing control over your dreams until you can control everything that's going on in your dream. Well, then the only real growth direction for you is to start challenging yourself by limiting your ability, by forgetting that you have this omnipotence in this dream world and by basically not like making yourself black out at deeper and deeper layers of forgetfulness and then rediscovering it over and over. And he's like, now, you know, let's just take this to its logical conclusion. You know, where does that put you? It puts you here in this room right now, having this conversation. Like, how do you know that you're not the omnipotent dream mind that's, that is dreaming this entire situation and is, you know, just waiting for you to wake up to yourself again. You know, the best example that I've ever seen. I'm pretty sure that's what the fucking voice said. Yeah, (laughs) probably. So the best, the best example of this that I've ever seen in science fiction was in Charles Strauss's book, Glass House, which takes place 600 years in the future. And it takes place for the most part inside an archaeological reconstruction of the present day. And the characters in that story have volunteered or have they to participate in this experiment where they're living the way that we do, where you can't choose what body that you're going to be in and you're not just automatically respond if you die, like backed up by the computer at the, you know, the city, like you're not consciously, you're not constantly being recorded and then like backed up. You know, and then they, they set up this experiment to try and understand the way that we think in this day and age. So they've created this social game that in, make, that provides people with incentives to go to church, go to their job, get married, get pregnant and have children. And this character who is, a, who thinks of himself as a, as a male is like stuck for the two years of this experiment in a female body and like encouraged to get pregnant. And it's just this horrifying experience for him of like, not, you know, the, the, the appliances in his house don't respond automatically to his thoughts and his desires. And, you know, if he were to like chop his arm off, that would be it. He would be stuck without a hand for the next two years, you know, and even, even the fact that they know that the experiment's going to end at some point, like two years is this unfathomably long time for these minds that are capable at running a millions of times faster than ours can today. You know, so it's this sort of reverse future shock scenario that really, you know, is it basically exactly what you said? It's, it's looking at the, the limits of where we are now from the unlimited state of being that our scientific rhetoric promises us. You know, that's like the goal of human civilization, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that particular book, Glass House by Charles Strauss is a real, uh, tough assed like hard as nails examination of like, do we really want this society? You know, do we really want the world that we're building for ourselves? Like, even if it's everything that we had asked for it to be, you know, because as soon as you're unlimited, then the only thing left to do is become more limited. And so what's the point? You know, and then if you become more limited, then you just remember being unlimited, however vaguely. And it's just, you know, it's just the fucking wheel of suffering. You know, it just never, you know, the the only way to really transcend that whole cyclical endeavor is to be comfortable with where you are right now. Because the universe is not going into some final state of perfection, nor is it 
falling into total hellish chaos. It's just, you're just on the, the all merry-go-round, you know? <laughs> so I felt like I was on a merry-go-round, but I mean, definitely this is where we're <laughs> d- diverging. Um, yeah. um, but, uh, definitely like you're, you're speaking to my experience last night. Certainly. That, um, you're you're articulating uh, it well. Tell me if tell me if this phrase doesn't ring true to you. Obscenely sacred. You know, I just like vulgar. I don't know what I think in how that. awesome it, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's the most like amazing thing that I've ever seen. But in like this gruesome but, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I get sad and stuff and everything else and um, but um. Ah, shit. I I forgot what I was going to say about it. Um, It doesn't matter. It's like, it it really is incomprehensible when you're in there. And it's very much hard to sort out. But yeah, it was very much like like this idea and this time and the space and everything else. It's just like, you know, what? what's the point? Look, here it is. It's so obvious. And that showed like... uh, what was hard to justify was like, well, what was that thing that I was just doing for the last 34 years? <laughs> <in> this <laughs> other thing. <laughs> what was that exactly? Is right. what uh, is it makes as little sense to that mind as this as that does to this. I do wonder what I would like to know is if um, I don't know if we have time to get into this. This is going to be like another hour long conversation. We, we we should. I wanted to talk about um, Cap Girl syndrome, and I, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Are you familiar? No. The imposter syndrome. Um, oh yeah. Uh, so like a, a thing severed in your eye that uh, that gets information to the amygdala. Right? right now, when you look at things, you have no emotional attachment like it like you used to. You had some stroke in that part. It's not getting. So now you see your parents and your subconscious would be like, oh, these are my parents, the people that made me. And I, I love them. even if you might not consciously feel that way all the time, that's what your brain's wired to do. Right, yeah. And then you don't have this connection anymore. You don't have this emotional connection to that anymore. And the way that your brain rectifies this situation is by going, wait a second. These are imposters. These look like my parents and sound like my parents. Everything else. These definitely aren't my parents. Get me out of here. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and this is this is the the narrative that your brain comes up with. Uh, I am just a little bit suspicious that what's happening with, um, especially mushrooms, um, but maybe DMT as well, is is that it's just overly stimulating these same emotional connections and all of the sudden it's like oh uh, look at mother nature and you look at plants it's like oh of course we're all related and we are all one and i love this plant and it is me and it's part of me and it's the exact same sort of thing that you would feel for your family just in reverse and if that's all that's going on with hallucinogens that might be a clear enough explanation well actually there is there is some fairly solid scientific study of this kind of thing. Um, you want to hear some really good talk on it. Got to talk to Gary Weber, okay. who's actually, he works with Rich Doyle at Penn state. It's W E B E R. And he talks about the relationship between enlightenment and psychedelics. I got to try. I'll try to track all these guys. Yeah. Down. All, all he says about it really is that, and you know, the, what the research shows is that specifically what psilocybin is doing, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a, 
it is a form of DMT. You know, it's got some additional groups on it, but it's a, it's a tryptamine. What it's doing is reducing the blood flow to the areas of the brain that are ordinarily associated with the maintenance of an egoic center for your narrative experience. So it's, it's interrupting the part that's responsible for constructing a boundary between the inner world and the outer world. Mm -hmm. And it's interrupting the parts of the brain responsible for creating a sequence from past to future, you know? So, you know, Aldous Huxley and a lot of these people thought that what maybe psychedelics were doing was not just, was not adding to the mind. It was actually subtracting, right. you know, and that seems to be what, what the case is that it's actually opening us, uh, you know, it's removing the working definitions that we use on a daily basis and allowing us to experience reality, which some might argue is actually more the way that it is, um, from, you know, on like a, you know, a, a larger perspective. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I would argue that and that might be where we diverge, but I'm definitely open to it. Yeah. And I want to continue this conversation yeah. again next time. Well, let's but, do that. But yeah, uh, yeah that's because we just have, you know, too much to talk about. It's life. You we, have we other people talk to talk all, to. All, I understand. No, I just have other places to be tonight <laughs> and I was super late and uh, irresponsible getting here. And so I got a jet. Um, but well, I had uh, fun. Please, uh, why don't uh, do you want to talk about uh, your art, or you want me to talk about it? It's awesome. I I haven't checked out all of it, but I'm in his house with a bunch of awesome paintings um, that Michael Garfield has made, as as well as his roommates. And um, and if you go to um, michaelgarfield.net, you got it. I remembered that. Um, you can see all of his stuff, including all of his music, which is. And not only fantastic, but, you know, if you're feeling like experimenting on DMT and wondering a good thing to listen to, it's uh, be good for that as well. But it's also just on its, oh, own, thanks. On its own very, very good, um, wonderful uh, music. And, all, and you can hear him do. You, you create a lot of things. In my mind, you put out a lot of outputs, a lot of products products that then yeah. become separate from you and that's where we um right now differ and, and we'll we'll argue on the um uh, the the details of that merging a, a little more it's like time. arguing with a guy who's whose side of the argument is that you're the same it's <laughs> yeah. like well it's, how do you how do you resolve that yeah, and really yeah. the only the only thing well I, uh, arguing is probably <laughs> the worst word because we're, we're very much kind of on the same page yeah really um, the only thing that i have to add to this is that if you ever come, you know, Yogi Berra has that quote, you know, he, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, mm -hmm. you know, if you're ever lost in reality and you can't find your way out and you're like, should I go this way or this way? Try to figure out, maybe it's going up, you know, maybe, maybe you got to add that dimension. And right. from that extra dimension, you can see that those two ways actually join again on the other side of that perceived obstacle. You know, and mm -hmm. that what you're looking at is not, you know, an absolute split between things, but a, a divergence that ultimately converges again somewhere else, right. you know? So somebody's going to say, oh, it's two paths. Well, it's like, well, there's two ways to take the same path. You know, neither of those people is wrong, you know, right. ent entirely wrong. So... Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. Michael Garfield, everybody, michaelgarfield.net. Thank you for listening to... Um, 
the the most ambitious um uh, <laughs> here we are podcast uh yeah i am curious to hear what your responses are so please um write and email me and send us both notes and let us know that you enjoyed the conversation thank you very much Woo! thank you guys for listening a uh, bit of an update on our little deal. Um, I am almost there to 100 ratings on iTunes for the podcast. I'm at 78 right now. And uh, once there's 100, I'm releasing a bonus episode. And then once there's 100 reviews, I'm releasing another one too. There's 58 reviews right now. Those are coming in. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, especially, uh, 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 there's been a lot of like really... Um, interesting, thoughtful reviews that provide a lot of information for potential listeners. So those are ones that people um, read and respect and um, are interested in too. So, uh, you know, I, I know everyone only has so much time for these. And I, I know if you're a podcast junkie, you hear stuff like this all the time. And I apologize if, if that I don't mean to be annoying you or wasting your time, but I am going to release extra episodes um, for helping me out. Um, I, and I'm going to do the same thing. I decided with my new album, here we are. Once I reach 50 ratings on iTunes and 50 reviews on iTunes, I'll, I'll release a bonus episode per each one of those things um, that happens. So if, if you want to get my album and... Um, or even if you just listen to it on Spotify or, or wherever you heard it, if you go on iTunes and give it a rating or a review, that helps me out tremendously. Like I said, it hit the, the uh, top, it, it was the number one selling album on iTunes um, for uh, the last few days here, which is absolutely unbelievable. And if I could keep that going for a little while longer or even keep it in the top 10, the top 50, whatever, that's where a lot of people go to decide what comedy album they want to listen to. And so having it up near the top, um, helps me out a lot. And, uh, and yeah, then maybe one of these days I'll actually have a, um, a big enough fan base where I can go around to whatever city that I want to and perform, um, like yours, rather than having to uh, wait on my agent to um, wheel and deal with people to get me in a place, um, wh whatever random work that I can get. So that's the dream anyway. We'll see. I appreciate you guys helping me out and, um, and putting up with, uh, <laughs> with these long-winded intros and outros. Uh, this is just kind of an important time for me. Um, but Next time, next week, rather, on the program, I, I have a, a really a great... Uh, so I, I'm back at um, ASU, Arizona State University, and I'm talking with Doug Kenrick. Doug, Doug Kenrick, when I, when I found out that I was going to be getting guests um, from ASU, I wanted to go there specifically for this guy. I got everyone else after the fact. Um, he wrote this book, Rational Animal, that I that I read years ago uh, that I thought was just absolutely um, fantastic, and uh, you should check it out, and and you'll you'll be a little more informed for when we talk next week if you want to. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, just wait. 
wait and uh, and and listen and decide for yourself. I think um, it's a good one. I, I've taken a lot of the ideas that he talks about in his books, and and they've really helped inform um, a lot of how I think about. Uh, life. It's another evolutionary psychology one. We talk about kind of subselves in the brain, different, um, different driving mechanisms. Different. You kind of need different personalities for different, um, different aspects of your life. And so that that'll be the main focus of next week. And I think, uh, I mean, it, it really, really awesome. I, I think it's one of my favorite I, do i say that every time i just love this doing this podcast so much and i um so anyway i get excited but i genuinely mean it um so thank you guys oh he also wrote a book sex murder in the meaning of life which i also read so so check that out and um and again itunes reviews hooray thank you <laughs> Oops, guys, almost forgot the charity of the week. Sometimes I get so engaged in a conversation like the fascinating one that you heard that I forget to uh, to do some of those little uh, in- details that are uh, the important ones. So the charity of the week, this is uh, I asked Michael um, afterwards for the charity of the week and he wanted to uh, plug, promote, whatever you want to say, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I think that's pretty fitting. It's ssdp.org. And um, I'll tell you what, don't even, don't even donate. You know what? Don't even donate. Here's what I want you to do. There's no obligation to give anything. T- just take a look at the site. That's it. You don't have to have any intention of giving any of your money. Take a look at the site. Uh, I, I don't, um, I don't like to be p- political or anything in this podcast, even though I'm going to say this is something that I just believe in myself. And, um, and I, I hope to have some guests on, um, maybe talking about drug policy in the future. Um, and so we can get some information out there before, um, be, before, you know, talking about, um, the politics of it. But anyhow, go to ssdp.org and click on about. And here's the coolest, uh, thing. There's, there's this, um, drug sense, drug war clock and it is this running total so it has the time of day and you can look up your state or whatever but it also has just federally or whatever else and it has it has the number it has has the amount of money spent um already this year which i'm i'm looking at it right now and it's um uh six and a quarter billion dollars that the federal government has spent on this outrageously silly um war on drugs uh it talks about cannabis arrests which right now is i mean it's nearing it's over three hundred and fifty thousand. All all drug arrests almost 700 i'm sure it's over seven hundred thousand. probably by the time um you're listening to this imprisonment almost five thousand people in prison it, and and you see this running total kind of um kind of like the the debt clock um in new york and and i think that's a really cool thing so so go there just to look at that and then while while you're there hey maybe um maybe read the the about the mission statement uh whatever you want and you know 
Um, if that's something you're interested in, great. If it's not, we also accept you. Um, but uh, again, um, you know these these things aren't mandatory. This is just a uh, a gentle nudge toward um, thinking about possibly doing uh, something um, good outside yourself. Not a guilt trip at all, just something meant to hopefully make you feel good about yourself by doing good for others. Um, Can it work? I don't know. Hope so. I think so. Uh, I will talk with you guys next week. Thank you for listening. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blow jump why mr seinfeld I'd love having you 